Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. It is Tuesday morning, July 19, 843-661-0937. Is this the same show? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I know we're in the same studio. Is this the same show? It's amazing, up, what a, it's amazing what a little change of music does to the whole sound and feel of the show, right? So what is this music? I don't know the show. I don't have a feel yet. You got a feel for the show yet? Well, no. You you had, uh, well, you voiced a complaint yesterday about the- I didn't the, voice a complaint. About the That's opening unfair. music. No, I did not is voice it? a complaint. Is it? No. I, I said, who decided right. that that would but, be but the, the intro? But then I pinned you down on it and you said, yeah, I don't, don't actually really like that intro music. So, so obviously, uh, Mike heard what you were talking about and made a change. So there's some new music for you. I like that better. Oh, see? I like that a see? little better. Freehold, what is that? It is uh, Welcome Home by Coheed and Cambria. Yeah, that's what course. I thought it yes. was. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> what I thought it was. You said Elvis was saying that when? <laughs> so I see Freehold at the gym yesterday. I mean, oh, yeah, yeah there, there, there's there's two places. Well, there's two levels at the gym. The upstairs are for the, um, for the, the piddlers, you know, those who just kind of <laughs> mess around and work out. And then downstairs are special forces. It would be a little bit like the military. I mean, if you just want to be in the Army, then go upstairs. You want to be a Green Beret, go downstairs. Want to be in the Navy, go upstairs. Want to be a Navy SEAL, go downstairs. I don't suppose we have to speculate where you are. Well, I mean, I just told you I looked up and saw Cato. Exactly. Excuse me, I saw Freehold. Freehold Cato. I got to get this straight. I mean, Cato's not here any longer. It's Freehold. And Freehold just put his stamp on this show. Mm -hmm. I mean, he just took some executive privileges and and, and producer liberties. Mm -hmm. And uh, I kind of like that. So Mm -hmm. um, is that the new um intro for the show as we speak Since well it's going to be the music i still am waiting for our voice guy to send back some new um intro voiceovers okay good deal good deal um put your fingerprints all over this masterpiece you hear me um <laughs> I, i'm a level with you full disclosure i'm struggling today really but he, last week was a i mean I, I didn't temper myself i didn't regulate myself i i came out of the gate guns a-blazing and had so much I'd read and and tried to understand and needed to explain. And it's almost like I, I, I didn't pace myself enough. And um, and there's not a lot going on. When the dog days of summer, uh, we're heading, what, what, three or four weeks before kids go back to school, if I'm not mistaken. My daughter really? goes back, I think, uh, about the middle of August-ish, somewhere thereabout. In fact, she made a trip yesterday to Columbia to take some furniture. You know, freshmen have to live on campus. Sophomores don't. And um, so she's not living on campus. She and two other girls in her sorority are sharing a house. And um, I think the rental began in July. So we're paying for it. So my wife is off on Monday. They made a trip to Columbia yesterday, home of the Fighting Gamecocks, um, and carried some furniture. I don't know. I mean, I don't have any. I'm left out of that. I don't have any (laughs) idea what they do when they do uh, their thing. So I got a rundown. You ready? You ready? Diesel, diesel fuel, um, Trafalgar polling, Maryland primary, uh, 538 polling, Beto O'Rourke, Arizona governor, um, still got this story about Arizona and the school districts, and is it, did we finally break it? Can I take some privileges here, because I kind of want to go there for for just a second and follow up on some of the debate we had yesterday. Um, America is in decline, yay or nay? It'd be hard from, from your perspective. It'd yeah, be you're hard not. to argue. Uh, nay. Okay. So. America's in decline. Kind of feels uh, that way. Have we finally broken it? I mean, if we agree, and I think the majority of Americans, I mean, I read a five thirty eight poll see, last I believe night. America has gone through tough times before, okay. obviously, and okay. and you know, 
lived another day, so to speak. Has America ever had an extended run of what you would, I mean, if the metrics and measures, we're talking about metrics and measures on Wake Up Carolina. Uh, they don't apply the I mean, we survived sector. a civil war. Yeah. Did we have 30 trillion in debt? Here's what I'm arguing, Rev. That's, that's just money. What do we need? Yeah, okay. That's <laughs> okay. You're right. That's just money. And maybe, maybe because I've spent my entire life in the business world, the bottom line matters more than it should. Maybe I am coaching myself into believing that America is a business and the bottom line suggests we're bankrupt and done. I mean, if, if I mean, I've been in some business deals, and you know, you see the writing on the wall. You know where we're headed. Uh, it's inevitable. It's, it's unavoidable. I mean, you, you're going to end up closing the business, and it's just not going to work. There, there is no saving grace. There is no lifeboat. There is no magic formula. There is no CEO in waiting. There is no, there's nothing you can do to salvage what is failing, and, and at some point in time, uh, you accept it, and you admit that you made a bad decision, made a bad mistake, um, you close the doors and you go home or you go going to, to something else. Um, the debate I had yesterday with a couple of folks is um, there, there's a general, I don't want to say it, a consensus, uh, it's not unanimous. There's a general agreement that right now in our history, we're in dramatic decline. Now, now you're right. We've had other episodes of being in dramatic decline, um, some culturally and socially. Starbucks, I only saw Howard Schultz's interview yesterday. I mean, mm. Schultz comes out yesterday and says uh, they're closing, I think, 9, 10, 11, 12. Uh, it's double digits. Starbucks in Portland, Seattle, Los Angeles, Chicago. Um, is, there, is there a company that embodies the, the evolution that liberal Americans want to have in America than Starbucks? I mean, it would be the poster child of woke corporatism, you know, um, defund the police, uh, I think Schultz, if I'm not mistaken, there's some irony in here. So remember when um, we had some issues at Starbucks and it was kind of racially sensitive and, and there was some tension there. And Schultz stepped in and said, we're going to let people use our restrooms whether they buy Starbucks products or not. Doesn't matter to us. You don't have to go to the cashier and get a key. Nobody's looking to make sure you bought a cup of coffee if you come to the restroom. Right. Um, we're going to be kind and gracious and, and just decent to people. That's our brand. Uh, we're in charge of six bucks for a cup of coffee, but you can come to the restroom and not buy anything if you choose. Well, all of a sudden, the reason they're closing these Starbucks down in, in Seattle, Portland, Los Angeles, Chicago, I think Austin, Texas, if I'm not mistaken, has one that they're closing, is there's so much crime and, and really drugs in, in some of the restrooms. So when... Uh, Howard Schultz, owner of Starbucks, CEO of Starbucks. I think he left for a while, but he's back because they had some issues. So when Schultz is at Starbucks and he basically says to the world, um, you know, we're going to do it different. I mean, we're woke. Uh, we're politically correct. We're not going to, to do business as business has traditionally been conducted. Um, and all of a sudden, the bathrooms at Starbucks are havens for crime. I mean, they're talking about how many needles and this is really and truly what it is. The homeless are going to Starbucks to take baths. They're going to Starbucks to get their fix. Uh, they, they found, I mean, I've read report, 400 needles in about 30 Starbucks mm. all over the country. San Francisco would be another example. So, so the irony in this is Schultz invited the public to use his restrooms, whether you got money to buy a $6 cup of coffee or not, because it seemed like the right thing to do. And all of a sudden, the people took him up on it. The homeless and drug uh, addicts said, hey, the guy that owns Starbucks said we could go to his restrooms if we choose. Uh, none of us have $6 to buy a cup of coffee. 
we can find enough money to get some meth or some opiate or some, you know, cocaine or heroin or whatever. Um, why waste your money on coffee when we've got, you know, these other drugs that make caffeine look like baby, you know. Um, <laughs> but he, he, And now all of a sudden Schultz gives a press conference yesterday where he lectures to America about its lack of leadership. You know, uh, Starbucks is a shining city on a hill if you're a woke American. If you're a politically correct American, if you're a liberal American, um, nobody does it like Starbucks, right? I mean, would you agree to that? When you look at innovation in the economy, when you look at, um, I mean, I like to say that Clemson is Amazon, the Gamecocks are Sears. I mean, the Gamecocks have more resources, but they're just, you know. I don't know what to say because I like their coffee, but I don't like the company. Never been, never been a fan of the company. Really? And it's, and it's probably because of the, you know, the outspoken wokeness. But but being a student of business or somebody fancies himself as a student of business, you're always trying to figure out how that company did what it is they did. How did Howard Schultz and the leadership at Starbucks um, create a formula or a model that allowed them to put one on about every street corner in major metropolitan America yeah, and, and succeed. And the third place concept yeah, well, I mean, we've talked about over the years. Well, I mean, we had a meeting with Starbucks executives. I was involved in a piece of property. And we had a what we thought was a, um, I mean, we knew it was borderline, but we thought it would be a site that Starbucks may have some interest in. Car counts, median income, blah, 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 blah. Uh, some of these metrics and measures I talk about. So we reached out to Starbucks, uh, used to a political friend of mine. I'll tell you, the, the late Joe Edens. I mean, I've told you, Joe, I had as much respect for Joe Edens in business as anyone. Joe owned a bunch of commercial property, and I think he had 16 or 18 leases with Starbucks. So Joe gets us a meeting with a Starbucks executive, and I mean, I'm always kind of picking and prodding, trying to figure out what it is they do and how they've been wildly successful selling $6 cups of coffee or a cinnamon dolce latte, or skinny <laughs> cinnamon dolce latte, or a pumpkin spice, you know, uh, amaretta. I mean, it's got, there's all kinds of different things on, on the menu. But anyway, they came up with this philosophy, third place. And I'm like, who wants to be in third place? Well, I mean, if your first place is, is home, your second place is work, you don't have to be at home, you don't have to be at work, where's the third place you want to be? And they came up with this philosophy or this business uh, model of uh, Starbucks is going to be your third place. When Rev and I meet about the show, we meet at Starbucks. When when Freehold meets his buddy from um, you know the gym, he meets at Starbucks. I mean, it became kind of a um, a gathering place, a meeting place. Um, don't have to be at home. Don't have to be at work. Where do I want to be? You want to be at Starbucks. Um, I'm not saying you do, but that's kind of the strategy they employed. Well, all of a sudden, it works. And they become an iconic American and, and really global brand. Out of that comes, uh, you know, a guy who everybody has an interest in, Howard Schultz. How did Howard Schultz do that? I mean, there's got to be some genius behind, you know, putting a coffee shop on every corner, charging people $6 an hour, and you can't get in. I mean, they're all, you know, yuppies and preppies, and I'm using some 80s words here for a second. <laughs> um, these younger folk are sitting there with their computer, and um, a lot of people use Starbucks as their office. You know, the, these remote workers that don't need Well, I mean, I, I, I know it. I'm doing the 80s thing. This is back when uh, you never saw a BMW, you know, and, and if somebody had a BMW, of course they were a yuppie or a preppy. Right. But um, but now Schultz is lecturing to the country about its its failure to protect his property, and that being the Starbucks and his employees. And, um, and I get it. I mean, he's making he's making a business decision, and, he's, and every one of these stores is profitable. I mean, this is interesting to me. Every one of the stores, I read an article in Bloomberg yesterday. I think it's 19 stores in nine cities, if I'm not mistaken, 
but every one of these stores is profitable. They just aren't safe. And the reason that they're not safe is Howard Schultz invited people to come to his restroom, whether you had money to buy coffee or not. And there's a lot of irony in this. And and in the good day, in the best days of America, could Starbucks have made that offer and been okay? I mean, was society uh, well, aware of Most of the of locations itself? you mentioned are obviously Democrat-controlled sure, states and very, cities. very liberal cities. And he says that they have abdicated their responsibility as safe government. I mean, they, the, the, these places that he is talking about, or, or you're right, they're governed by liberal, liberal uh, Democrats, uh, and he says they have just shirked their responsibility. I mean, I think his word was abdicated. He, we, they, these, these people have been elected to, you know, uh, govern the city, govern the county. They have not done their job, and we're closing these 19 locations down. But but a lot of that is on Schultz, because once again, Schultz, uh, I think you make a calculus, Reb. I think we decide whether we believe that human nature is good or not. But I'll ask you that. Is human nature at its core good or not? I think it is. I got to believe it. Okay. But but you would accept there are many, many, many who aren't. Obviously. Okay. Uh, but but you think in totality. You think in the aggregate. But, well, yeah. Nah. I don't know. I, I don't know about that. Um. That's an interesting question. It I mean, is. I don't it know is the very interesting. At its core, in the aggregate, the human soul. I just have soul, to believe it. I would be. I would depress myself if I didn't believe it. Well, I mean, that. I, I tell I'm about to tell you a second ago. We're thirty-eight, five thirty-eight. I was looking through some polling. Um, for those who want to know, Kahaley released a poll last night at ten fifty-seven. You saw that Trafalgar. Um, Donald Trump at forty-seven point nine percent. Joe Biden at forty-two point six percent. Undecideds at nine point six percent. There's kind of a there's a race that we'll pay a little bit of attention to today in Maryland. Um, in Maryland, Democrats outnumber. Baltimore is one of the cities that I think a Starbucks is closing down in. Um, in Maryland, Democrats outnumber Republicans two to one, but it's, they have a Republican governor. Larry Hogan is one of these uh, moderate Republicans. Moderate, um, you know, he's kind of a celebrity, and, and I'm talking about celebrity with Chuck Todd and George Stephanopoulos. Um, he's the poster child of where do we go from Trump? You know, if, if indeed the Trump energy is waning and MAGA is running out of gas, um, Larry Hogan's one of these guys that, the, you know, traditional media, the George Stephanopoulos is Chuck Todd's of the world are telling you that Larry Hogan is the guy we need to pay attention to. He'd be a Mitt Romney. He'd be the um, he'd be Romney without the hair, Romney without the the silhouette. I mean, Romney looks like every weatherman in America. Hogan doesn't. I mean, he just simply does. He's kind of a chubby, bald head guy. No offense to chubby, bald head guys, but that's just that uh, there, there's a photogenic component to politics in America today. Kennedy, Nixon kind of made that uh, a reality. But um, but but Trump has endorsed um, Dan Cox, the Trump endorsed candidate. Um, Larry Hogan has endorsed Kelly Schultz. And here's the question I'd ask again. I'm wearing you out with questions here this morning. Uh, if the state has twice as many Democrats as Republicans, and Larry Hogan is a Republican governor in a state with twice as many Democrats, is Larry Hogan really a Republican? You know, this goes back to the old yeah. Jim DeMint argument. Um, and and when do you rather, I mean, if you're, if, you're, if you're a Maryland Republican, would you rather lose with somebody who's truly a Republican or win with somebody simply who simply has an R beside his name? Because if you're a true Republican, 
I mean, if you really espouse Republican values and views, you ain't winning in a state that has you outnumbered two to one. You're just not. So when Larry Hogan says, you know, I'm the future of the Republican Party, Larry Hogan is a Republican who won in a state with twice as many Democrats. Is that the kind of Republican? I mean, I don't know what Larry Hogan said on the campaign trail. I've never watched Larry Hogan debate. But, but he professes to be a Republican, and he argues, and the national media is now telling us that Larry Hogan is kind of the model Republican moving forward. But Larry Hogan's a Republican who won in a state that has twice as many Democrats. Is Larry Hogan really a Republican? What sort of Republican values does he articulate? or espouse? What does he believe in? Um, but today, we've got an election in Maryland that, that eventually the Democrat will win. And, and I, you know, this is the Jim Demen in me. I'd probably rather have Cox lose than Schultz win. That's a weird thing to say because Schultz is a Republican and Cox is a Republican. But, but I just don't know that anybody can win that state being a true Republican. So instead of a phony make-believe Republican, you know, ma- a Democrat masquerading as a Republican, let's just let the Democrats have it. I know that's kind of a weird, what do you mean? You want a Democrat to win? Well, in a weird way, yeah. Because once again, how does a true Republican, how does a limited government Republican, um, somebody who wants the government to live within its means, somebody who wants to balance above, all the things that Republicans believe in, how does that Republican win that state if he truly is a Republican? I'll give you an answer. I don't think he does. I think you put a Republican by your name and you say things that, a lot of Democrats um, easily and readily embrace. I want to go through some of this polling, uh, some of these other states. We're about to get to a place where we need to start paying close attention to the cycle. And by that, I mean we're five and a half weeks out from Labor Day-ish, somewhere thereabout. Um, Labor Day will pretty much, the midterms are on then. I mean, you've got your nominees. we got a primary in Arizona. we got a primary in Wyoming. we got a primary in Maryland today. I mean, these states are about to settle all the scores. We'll have a lineup of candidates with a Republican beside their name, line of candidates with a D beside their name. And from about Labor Day until November, I mean, it's its own. I mean, the midterms are on. You got J.D. Vance trying to win in Ohio. Got Dr. Oz trying to win in Pennsylvania. We'll find out whether Blake Masters is indeed the nominee in Arizona or not. But the primaries will be done. It'll be midterms. And then it's presidential politics. I mean, Mike Pence is in Florence in two days. I mean, why do you think he's here? Mike Pence endorsed yesterday. Um, let me make sure I get this right. Mike Pence endorsed yesterday um, Karen Taylor Robson in Arizona for the governor's race. Trump has already endorsed Kerry Lake. So there's, um, you know, these people are beginning to kind of line themselves up with interest. Um, Mike Pence at the Florence Baptist Temple Wednesday, or is that Thursday? Is it Thursday night? Thursday night at 7 o'clock. Um, America post row is kind of the visit he's making, but I just got to believe he's exploring the opportunities and, and the appetite for South Carolinians considering a, uh, and Pence is probably one of the most interesting people in the race. Um, I perceive Pence as somewhat establishment, but he was Trump's VP. I mean, that's that there's some street cred there. I mean, Donald Trump picked Mike Pence to be his, even his VP, even how it kind of all ended. I still think Pence won how it ended. I think if there's a winner and a loser to the end of Trump's administration, I think Pence is the winner. And Trump, to me, is clearly the loser. Let's 
What I, I was going to say, speaking of presidential politics, did you see Nikki Haley's tweet that's getting a little attention? I have not. <clears throat> so she tweeted, uh, this would have been last night, and if this president signs any sort of deal, I'll make you a promise the next president will shred it on her first day in office. Mm-hmm. Nikki thinks a lot of herself. Apparently. Always has. Um, I just don't know that the American people <laughs> share that sentiment. Just an interesting yeah, well, little... Just, well, you know, I mean, you know Nick, Nikki is a very ambitious politician. Extremely ambitious. Uh, take a break. Back in just a few minutes. 538 runs these models. A little bit like hurricane modeling. 53 of the 100 models they run have the Republicans win in the Senate. 87 of the 100 models they run have the Republicans win in the House of Representatives. So the Republicans are going to win the House. And once again, between now and Labor Day, they'll set the field. They'll have their primaries. Democrats will have their primaries. Um, candidate with a D beside their name, candidate with an R beside their name. That may change some of the numerics, but there's about an 87% chance, well, let's say 90% chance, that the Republicans win the House of Representatives. There's about a 53% chance. And we knew that was going to be a kind of a taller hill to climb because of the cycling. It's not risk. It's, remember, um, the House runs every two years, the Senate every six. So you've got these um, these staggered terms. And right now, the Republicans are playing more defense than they are offense. In other words, no matter what the economy looks like in 24, the Republicans have a better chance of picking up seats in 24 because they're playing less. It's one of the rotation years where um, – there's it's always uneven, but more Democrats are playing defense and trying to hold a seat in some of the swing states than and the Republicans are doing that this year. Let's go to the phone. Hey, Mike, you're going to have to put that phone in the hybrid. My computer just crashed okay. as I went to it. <laughs> we got a call. Uh, yeah, John and Lamar, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. How are you doing, guys? Hey, John, how are you? Good. Look, you're talking about Larry Hagan. I want I want to fill you in on something real quick. Uh, my entire family and my wife's entire family are from Maryland. Uh, I grew up in Maryland, and I watched politics up there fairly closely. Um, Larry Hogan makes Mitt Romney look like Donald Trump. <laughs> if, there ever, if there ever was a, a Democrat that says he's a Republican, it's Larry Hogan. He has done nothing in Maryland except for running down. It, it, he's got he's got Maryland, and we're in this country set. So just to fill you in, in case he runs, you guys can do a little research to figure out who the hell Larry Hogan is. <laughs> he ain't right. <laughs> Thank you, John. I appreciate that. Well, I mean, when you look at the numbers, when you and, and this is just, I mean, the, once again, I've not done any research on Larry Hogan because I don't think he has a chance in the world of being a national figure. I mean, he does. And, but how does a Republican win How does a, a Republican win in a state with twice as many registered Democrats as Republican? Either he's the greatest politician in the history of mankind or he ain't what he or says he Republican is. Credentials aren't that pure. Bingo. I mean, he's not what he says he is. And I think the national brand and the national media is always looking for a reason to throw Trump under the bus and the MAGA movement and the Make America Great Again and, uh, you know, America First. I mean, whatever you want to call it. You call it whatever you choose to call it. Um, it seems to me that a lot of the MAGA crowd are embracing MAGA. You know, remember I said there had to be some polling, extreme MAGA, uber MAGA, ultra MAGA. Um, all that came from polling. I mean, I'll assure you that that's focus group driven. And, um, and it seems to me that a lot of you out there have embraced that. And uh, and I'd be careful. I mean, I'd be careful embracing. Because the, the Democrat polling apparently believes that's a negative well, because I mean, the president says, you know, the ultra mega crowd he keeps referring to. They don't believe it's a negative. They know it's a negative. I mean, they poll tested this. I mean, I can assure you with that. They have they have basically 
paid pollsters and researchers and consultants enormous amounts of money to find out how do we stigmatize that movement? How do we label it as dangerous, out of control, reckless, careless, um, insensitive? And, and MAGA, ultra MAGA is what they came up with. So when you say, that's why I push back on that. I hardly ever say, you know, I'm a MAGA Republican. I'm an America first Republican. I mean, I, you know, I just don't think that threatens people or intimidates people. And and once again, now, I mean, it, it's it's if you are one, you are one. Don't be apologetic for being what you are. But there is a negative connotation that goes along with ultra ultra MAGA or the MAGA movement. Um, what what the what the national media and the Democrats want you to do is think about some of the um, some of the fisticuffs and arenas. You know, some of the uh, some of the aggressive Charlottesville. You know, would be something that comes to mind. That was um that was the um, that's that's that MAGA crowd. I mean, you got to watch that MAGA crowd, man. They don't play by the same rules as everybody else does. They're insensitive and indecent and vulgar and and aggressive and you know that MAGA crowd. It's not the America First crowd. That MAGA crowd, the one that incited the insurrection on January six. It was not an insurrection. You know it and I know it. But a lot of independent-minded voters who don't fall in either camp. Uh, they buy into some of that narrative. So, yeah, I mean, when we embrace the MAGA narrative, I think we're hurting ourselves. I mean, I, I don't think you've got to be a, but you call yourself what plays well in the public square. And I think, you know, uh, I've heard a lot of Republicans, you damn right, I'm a MAGA Republican and I'm not backing away from it. Okay, be careful there, though, because the intent is to win elections. An America first Republican just plays better in the mainstream than a MAGA Republican. But yeah, when I saw where um, Hogan had endorsed Kelly Schulz and um, in Maryland, I kind of went digging around a little bit yesterday, not as much as I probably need to, but I went digging around. I said, okay, if Hogan, because Thickpin's from Maryland, and he's always talked about the struggle Republicans have. In, I mean, Republicans. He's mentioned on the show, he mentioned Hogan's name a lot. Well, I mean, he, but he's his kind of Republican. I mean, you know, Thickpin's an old school establishment, go along and get along Republican. And Larry Hogan seems to fit that bill. But the, the point I'm trying to make, and I think John just kind of um, solidified or, or emphasized my point is, you know, is Larry Hogan really a Republican? Now, how does a real Republican win in a state where Republican voters are outnumbered two to one? I mean, either he's the most talented politician in the history of mankind, or he's a, um, a Democrat disguising himself as a Republican um, you got to get about one of every three Democrats to vote for you, you know, in, uh, in Maryland to win as a Republican. So would one in every three Democrats vote for a Republican if he were really a Republican? And, and I argue no. So when Chuck Todd says, um, and, and they push Larry Hogan and Sununu and, and some of these other Northeast governors and senators, I mean, that's the guy that the national media wants that person to be the candidate because they don't put up any resistance. Remember, we talked yesterday about um, some of the force, the equal and opposite force. Um, when academia is so monolithic, when um, when the bureaucracies are so monolithic, when um, when, when the media is so monolithic, you got to have somebody with an equal and opposite resistance, and that's where we counted on Republicans. And the Mitt Romney, Larry Hogan's of the world just simply don't, I mean, they just don't provide that equal and opposite resistance. They just don't get in the way. Well, that makes it easier for Democrats to kind of move the meter. To move the center is what they've done. Uh, we talk about the gray, the mush to the middle. You know, the center is here. And let's say the 50-yard line. Let's say the, the political spectrum is a football field. And, you know, exactly on the 50-yard line is where the gray is. That's the middle. I mean, that's the, you know, that's where America moderates. That's where you find our common ground. 
I would argue that the Republicans like Mitt Romney, um, like Mitch McConnell, some of the other establishment Republicans have allowed the middle to now to be about the 35 or 40 yard line of the Democrat side. And it, it really goes back to some of these extreme positions and Democrats of a Democrat swing for the fence and Republicans, uh, you know, give them a single. Well, I mean, if you give enough singles, sooner or later you score runs. And I think the establishment Republicans have given up single after single after single after single until we've just lost the game. And that's why the, the, the Republicans, and that's why really the Romney story in Atlantic Magazine upset me. It really bothered me to believe that the last Republican presidential nominee not named Trump um, wanted to express himself in the mainstream. He doesn't go to the National Review. He doesn't go to the Wall Street Journal. He goes to Atlantic I mean, that, that says a lot, guys. I mean, Romney goes to the Atlantic Magazine on July 4th and says, will you guys run this essay? They probably review the essay and said, of course we will. I mean, you're blaming Trump for the toxicity in, in politics. You're blaming Trump for the contamination in the politics. And I've read it. I mean, Romney basically says that Joe Biden is genuinely a good guy trying to do a good job, but Donald Trump left the biggest mess you could ever imagine. Well, I mean, that's the that would be fine if it were Larry Hogan. I was going to say. I mean, if that or, were, or any Democrat. Or, or, or any Democrat or somebody who professes. I mean, this is a Republican presidential nominee, the last one not named Trump. I mean, that's where this party was. It's a little, and a lot of that is on us, guys. I mean, this isn't all Romney's fault. It's not all McCain's fault. It's not all Liz Cheney's fault. I mean, a lot of this is on us. I mean, we allowed this to go on much longer than we ever should have, and now we're having to aggressively ah, kind of yank the chain back in one direction, but it's going to be hard to get the middle back to the 50-yard line. I mean, once you let the left kind of uh, what I call liberal creep, once the left kind of moves and moves and moves and moves, next thing you know, um, you're never playing offense, you're always playing defense. And that's probably the best way to describe how I felt as a Republican. When are we going to force them to react to something. I mean, we're always reacting to what they want to do. And I'm talking about the left, you know, um, gay marriage and then uh, yeah, taxes and regulation. And I mean, all these things that were on the wish list of the American left, we were playing defense, never playing any offense whatsoever. Trump comes along and forces the left to play a good bit of, um, of defense. And they're not very good at it. I mean, we've seen that. When, when they're having to play defense, they're just not very good at it. The left is real good at dealing with people like Mitt Romney. They don't have a clue how to deal with people like uh, Josh Hawley or Ted Cruz. Is kind of um, He's found Jesus here recently, and I think he realizes where the Republican Party is headed. Um, before we take our break, I do want to say, Mike, you're right. Tomorrow night at 7 o'clock at the Florence Baptist Temple, um, former Vice President Mike Pence will be in town. Um, not Thursday night. Tomorrow night. At 7 o'clock, Florence Baptist Temple, the public is invited, have no idea how long it will last, have no idea what he will speak on, um, but a former vice president coming to your town is always a big deal. And the um, the message from what I'm gathering is life after Roe. I mean, Pence is a very religious and spiritual person. Um, it's kind of odd him aligning with Donald Trump, but um, but some of this has to be political. I mean, some of this has to be, I mean, Mike Pence is not coming to South Carolina simply to talk about um, life post-row uh, or America post-row. A lot of this is to test the waters, to see what sort of response he gets in one of the um, one of the early, early states that will decide who the next Republican nominee for president is. Take a break. Back in just a minute.
843-661-0937 is our number. I went back and looked at some of the Texas polling, Hispanics. I mean, remember we talked last week a good bit about Hispanics are moving over to the Republican Party. Really, it's, it's one of the biggest um, moves in American politics in history. The number of Hispanics who voted for the Democrat in 2018. I mean, as recent as 2018, uh, I think it was. I think Trump lost the um, Trump lost the Hispanic vote by about 24 points in 2016. He only lost it by about eight or nine points in 2020. And and the polling today shows that Hispanics are split between Republican and Democrat. That is a monumental move. I mean, that is a unfathomable move. So I went back yesterday and looked at some of the Texas gubernatorial polling. Uh, remember Beto O'Rourke and uh, Governor Abbott in, in Texas mm-hmm. uh, when he said, you know, this is on you and uh, your lack of gun laws and your lack of uh, uh, understanding the Second Amendment needs to have guardrails and there needs to be um, certain requirements of gun owners. Anyway, um, Beto moved for about a week. I mean, he went from... Um, he went from about 14 or 15 down, and I've always thought that was a little bit out of the norm, um, to about six or seven down. And the media celebrated, you know, Beto's, um, Beto, you know, as much as you thought it was disgusting for him to make that a part of, um, you know, the town hall where Abbott, nobody, we didn't even know about the, uh, the law enforcement agencies and how the, you know, hand sanitizers and reading your phone while the kids were being killed. I mean, th- there will be criminal charges in this. I mean, th- there will be absolute to be. criminal charges it's, in this. It's disgusting. But I went back and looked yesterday at some of the um, some of the Beto numbers. I call them Beto numbers <laughs> because I'm always interested in Beto. Um, yeah, Beto's also the guy who said, darn right, I'm coming for your yeah, guns. Yeah, he did. He did. No question about it in Texas. But yeah. when I looked at some of the Hispanic numbers, I mean, Hispanic vote really makes a big deal in, in Texas. Um 49-41, 45-39. Uh, the most friendly poll is the University of Houston poll that has Beto at 49-44. So, I mean, that he's not five points behind. He's probably eight or nine points behind. And if the Hispanics are breaking about half and half Republican Democrats, um, I think we said 75 seats are being targeted by the Republican committee, uh, the House committee. And I'm talking about the, um, the, the Kevin McCarthy's of the world, um, accept fundraising and they take the money and allocate it to the districts they think they have a chance to flip. There are 75 seats out there that they've targeted. 29 of the 75 seats have an Hispanic population in excess of 15%. So Hispanic outreach is going to be a big part of the 2022 midterms, and we'll see how that plays itself out. But Beto has fizzled. I mean, Beto is one of these guys, and I said it on the air. I mean, I, you know, you guys... Or I like to talk about the times I'm right. I mean, this is one time I was just completely wrong because I I thought he would be the nominee. I mean, in 2020, I really believed when Biden was a dead man walking, um, I thought Bo- Beto was the most politically skilled in that field and had the most charisma and stage presence. And I mean, he just he couldn't get. I mean, he's just not as good as I thought he may uh, be. I, and I never got the You did I mean, You were right, and I was dead wrong. I mean, I've been wrong more than one time, and there's one that I was completely wrong about. And the media was about. just trying to prop him up and make well, him that guy, make him the new Obama. And, and that's why and he's I just thought not. it would work, because the media is powerful but in he's that just way. Not. He's just not. You're right. He's just not. And he's going to lose again to Abbott, and he's going to diminish his uh, political viability, uh, and he'll ride off into the sunset and do whatever it is that a guy who married a rich lady's family um, does, because that's kind of where he did. Uh, the oh, best really? day's work Beto did was marry his wife, because I think his wife's family has a lot, a lot of money, and he kind of plays around and toys. It looked like that. Chris Christie. 
don't know if you knew that or not, but Christy's wife has uh, a pr- pretty substantial. Or she is um, she is connected. Let me hmm. say that she is connected. I didn't know that either. Uh, yeah, her family is is well off, and um, Christy can kind of you know play around and do what he wants to in politics as long as um her family has his back. Now, hmm. I don't know how much access he has to the money, but but it's pretty. Daddy ain't gonna let his daughter go hungry, right? I mean, Daddy's go if Daddy's got a lot of money and Christie's married to his daughter. I mean, Daddy may not think much of Chris Christie, but he kind of has an interest in how his daughter's living. And I would imagine um, Beto's wife would be similar in that regard. Um, I'm not saying Christie's never made any money. I'm not saying Beto's never made any money. But the luxury of having a wife who is um, financially connected <laughs> and, and well to do takes a lot of the pressure off of that situation. John Kerry comes to mind. Uh, too. John Kerry comes to mind. And uh, well, I mean, Mark Sanford, with all due respect, Governor Sanford uh, was married to Jenny, and Jenny's family was very, very wealthy. Um, the Skill Saw family, I mean, that, you know, the Skill Power Tool Company. And um, so Mark didn't have to uh, squirm with a sense of urgency. In other words, you, can, can I take off work a year? and pursue the governorship of South Carolina. I can if my wife's family has enough money to kind of keep our boat afloat and keep our lifestyle maintained. And then some of these guys, that's just, I mean, John Kerry is absolutely uh, an example of that. Um, probably the most exclusive example of any. I mean, I don't know anybody's family who has the money as um, Kerry's wife does. I mean, that's that's a fortune. I mean, that's not. <laughs> and that's when, when, you, when you're in that mindset, I guess, that's when you say things like Kerry said, People like me have to fly private jets. Yeah, people, people like me. People like me don't marry, um, you know, billionaire <laughs> heiresses, <laughs> but but he did, and now his interest is saving people the world. People we'll, like me. Yeah, we'll we'll me, take me. we'll take a break. We'll be back in just a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. Got a lot of different subjects. We're trying to find something to gain a little traction with. Rev and I were talking during the break. If you if you've done this for as long as we have. July and the early part of August becomes a grind. I mean, it really, I enjoy this show. I love this show. I like the opportunity to engage an audience and provoke and, and prod and twist and turn. But July and the early part of August, it just seems to me it's all you can do <laughs> to spur any interest or generate conversations. People are vacationing or they're uh, preparing for a vacation, coming home from a vacation, getting a kid ready to go off to school, uh, whatever. It's just it's the entire month of July and the early part of August. I mean, even an election year here in South Carolina, we've been through the primaries. They are all said and done, and we haven't really started cranking up for the general yet. So here we are yeah, in, and, the, in the doldrums of summer. And you're always trying to find something to spur or stir or start a conversation. It's just harder in July in August, I mean, it's harder for me. I mean, you know, because I'm in the middle of just getting back from a vacation and thinking about, you know, football season. And uh, anyway, but it's our job and we enjoy doing it and we're going to continue to do it. The best. But there's some days you can roll out of bed and there are two or three topics out there that everybody's keenly interested in, aware of, um, motivated to discuss. It's just, you know, I, I, I can just sense that right now people are thinking about things other than politics. I mean, I'm not saying nobody cares about Maryland and its gubernatorial race today. Uh, I think people care about a lot of different things. Um, but to spur conversations, there has to be a, a certain level of intensity, and it's hard to find that in uh, in July and the early part of August. Well, then let's go back and talk about something you had brushed on in the first hour okay. about the Hispanic vote and the, basically the, the the change in the Hispanic vote that, that seems to be a little more favorable to Republicans now. If you want to kind of do a deeper dive on 
Why? It doesn't seem to be more favorable. I mean, it, there's no question. I mean, it, there is a huge realignment happening in the Hispanic community. And this is not just Trafalgar, or this is not just Quinnipiac, but this is every pollster sees there is a, um, a realignment. And the statistics are changing on um, the Hispanic voter uh, to the point where in a generic congressional matchup, I'm talking about generic Republican, generic Democrat running for Congress. Um, well, I mean, in 2018, the Demo- the Republicans were upside down 47 points for congressional seats. Not that much in the presidential election uh, in 16 and 20, but, you know, a, 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 a Hispanic going to the poll was, um, I mean, the Republicans were upside down 47 percentage points. I mean, that's getting killed. I mean, that's not quite as bad as African-Americans uh, with a Republican, but it's close. But now it's statistically tied. I mean, it is a dead heat. And um, I got to believe, and there are a couple of things kicking here. Uh, the Republicans are becoming more working class, not a lot of wealthy Hispanics. I mean, they just aren't. The majority of Hispanics that have made their way to the country legally are, are very working class minded people. Um, so, so the Republican Party is becoming far more working class, uh, a little more multiracial, not, not as much as it needs to be but a little more multiracial, but combine that with the Democrats becoming far more elitist. Um, We talk about the college-educated white vote, um, the college-educated white female vote in particular. And and if you'd have convinced me 10 years ago that there will be a day um, in the not-too-distant future that Hispanics voted for Republicans at a higher percentage than white-educated women, there's no way. I mean, there's no way I would have bought into that, but that's where we are and I think there are a lot of um, different factors in play here. Um, the working class notion, I think, is the driver. I mean, I think the elitism has driven away some working class voters. Think, think Hispanics the open border, border policy has something I, I to do with know. it? I don't know. I mean, I, I, I think all of it has something to do with it. I think uh, open uh, po- open border policies, I think abortion, um, I, think, I think a lot of these things have something to do with it. But I think the biggest driver is America first seems to be relatable to the working class. Uh, we talk a lot about working class agenda, working class policies. What is the America first priorities going going to be? Um, I think that's got to be sorted out, but there seems to be an appetite or an interest from Hispanic working class voters. Um, and, and once again, if, if the Republicans were running in a district that had more white working, excuse me, white educated women, they're less likely to win than Hispanics. And that's just, that's very odd to me, um, the working class Hispanic has no tolerance for elitism. Um, maybe, just maybe, there's something happening in some of these affluent white circles that, you know, they kind of embrace the elitism. That They find America first to be a little bit uh, repellent, disgusting, uh, revolting. In other words, you know, I'm, a, I'm, I'm an educated white woman making good money, driving a suburban, carrying my kids to soccer practice. I don't really want to associate with those working class Hispanics and working class blacks and working class whites. I do think there's a degree of that. Uh, and I think the polls reflect that, that absolutely that's happening. Now, now, here's the problem. If you're a Republican, the suburban districts still make up a majority of the battlegrounds and some of the congressional seats. In other words, Republicans can't have a great year unless they perform okay. They don't have to kill it but they've got to perform okay in some of these white-educated suburban uh, degree of affluence. I'm not talking about the Hamptons. I mean, I'm talking about, uh, you know, higher than no, higher than average income, um, higher than average uh, education, 
uh, a little more fluent, a little more educated, um, but not the Hamptons. I'm not talking about Manhattan. I'm talking about some of these zip codes. Well, I mean, um, if the Republicans do better with Hispanic voters and don't get killed in some of these suburban districts that have a lot of white educated voters, it could be a monumental year. But I'll predict that in some of these districts, the Trump endorsed candidate um, will not get the support of some of the suburban educated white vote as they historically have. I think Thigpen refers to those districts as the silver stocking districts. I mean, once again, not the Hamptons, not the $5 million homes, but where, where people make a little more money and live, live a little more affluent lifestyle. That's still a big deal. And here's the problem, Rev. Here's why it's a big deal. Because when you gerrymander districts, what do the Republicans, what have they historically wanted? Fewer, um, fewer people of color, right? I mean, let's be candid. When, when you start drawing mm-hmm. up district lines, you know what you want? You want, you know, affluent white people and fewer. Uh, and all of a sudden you've caught yourself, you, you've got yourself in kind of a quandary. We drew the district to have, you know, college educated white people who historically have voted Republican. We want the Hispanics and blacks in the districts that have historically voted Democrat. And, and then you wake up one morning and you're more likely to get the support of an Hispanic working class voter than you are a college educated suburban voter. And that's really got the Republican Party, ah, I don't want to say confused, but kind of at odds with itself. Let's go to the phone. Someone there? Breeze. Hey, Breeze. Uh, I got a, um, the manager of the Mexican restaurant that's coming in this morning a little bit. I'm going to help him with his back. And I'm going to tell you right now, kid, you and I, and Dave have more in common with Eric Hernandez than we do with any of these white affluent liberals. I got them coming into my place every day, and I'm telling you right now, you have more in common with that young that young that I call him a kid. He's probably 25, probably works 80 hours a week, and I got a nail slot right beside me that's been the bees, probably work 80 hours a week. They will work circles around everybody you ever thought you knew that was white or black. I'm telling you, they are out working. There's going to be some white guys, some black guys saying, I work this and I work that, but I'm going to tell you right now, as a a general, I I have not seen the white or the black person that will outwork either one of those groups of people. I haven't seen them. I know I can't outwork them. I work 60 hours a week, maybe 65. But I'm telling you, they are the hardest working people I have ever seen. And I've seen hardworking people before, and these people work hard. And I'm telling you right now, if the Republican Party has to, either they need to find some uh, more Hispanics to run as Republicans, or they better get somebody that can speak Spanish and get their butt into these Mexican restaurants and even try to work. I mean, the Asians all voted all were for Trump. The Mexicans were all for Trump on both sides of me here. The guys on the corner were not. Okay, that's another story. But the point I'm making is these guys, they're not, they're not, they, they are not lazy. They, are, they, they look at us as lazy, kid. They look at, they look at all of those, they look at uh, what you call Americans, and they look, they, they look white and black folks as Americans, and they look at us as lazy. They really do. If you can speak their language, you can probably hear them laughing at us and talking trash about us every time they see us, about how lazy and soft we are. But here's a question I really wanted to ask you, kid. If you notice that the, uh, Pelosi and the people that are right now that keep saying 
is uh, the Republicans are a threat to democracy. The Republicans are trying to take your freedoms away. And I've got a client coming in, uh, and I won't be able to. I would wonder what the, how, how, what the professors say they're, they're how the Republicans. I'd like to ask the, the professors how are the Republicans trying to um, thwart democracy and take away people's freedoms. You know, they, they're the world's best Democrats are at accusing you of doing what they're doing. And I'd just like to know what they think of the Republicans are doing to destroy this democracy and to take away our freedoms, you know. But anyway... Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate it. There's a lot there. You know, the Hispanics, I mean, I've got a theory. It's just simply my theory. I don't have this uh, based on polling or not. I'm trying to get Robert to call in the next day or two. I mean, there's a lot going on in the world of polling. And um, uh, polling? I think, well, you know, no, it's not polling. You're right. It's not polling. <laughs> uh, providing accurate information to people who are willing to pay for it. Yes. Uh, That's the rebranding. For those, for those that heard that, uh, I, called, I called Robert. I mean, my daughter's doing a paid internship with Travolver. I mean, I've told you that over and over again. So as part of her internship, she's traveled a good bit um, to different places, talking about different campaigns, understanding. I mean, if, if everything goes as planned, they're leaving Friday morning, going to Turning Points USA. I mean, that's one of these. Um, I think there's going to be about 300 young Republicans. Um, and, and it's really the America First movement. I think Ron DeSantis, um, Candace Owens is another person who's scheduled to speak there. Um, Trump may or may not. Uh, Trump doesn't like to play second fiddle, and if DeSantis is there, uh, you know, there's kind of a. I don't think there's a rub there, but there's some ego that gets yeah, in the way. You don't want to be appearing as the opening act. Neither one of them I mean, do at any event. There you go. I mean, neither one want to play second fiddle you want to, to be the, the other. Headliner. And I think there. I mean, I, you know, DeSantis. I mean, the the only strategy DeSantis has. I mean, if you know, Ron DeSantis would never listen to me, but if he did, I'd say, Ron, you don't need to pay me. Here's the advice I'd give you for free: If Trump runs, let it be. If he doesn't run, if Trump runs, let it be. Forget it. I mean, I don't care how, I don't care what pollster tells you what. If Trump decides to run, you're 44 years old, wait. And Why? should he endorse him and go out and campaign for him uh, and actively work for him? I, probably. I mean, probably, but he doesn't have to. I mean, I think DeSantis is in a real good place, but I think he's worked to get himself to this place. But, but I've heard these stories about, you know, DeSantis and Trump in a head-on-head battle. Why? I mean, if you're 64, okay. I mean, you know, the window's closing. You're 40-some-odd years old. You've got a political life ahead of you. Your fate and future lie in the hands, not of Donald Trump, not of the establishment Republican, but of the Trump voter. I mean, that, that battle is settled. I mean, two of every three Republicans identifies America first. They're going to vote for Trump before they vote for you because they feel a personal loyalty. You know, you've told me before, you want to see Trump get what he deserves. I mean, mm -hmm. a second term. Um, that's your opinion. But but DeSantis just needs to, if Trump announces today he's running for president, and I think he will soon, um, then really? well, I, mean, I think the Trafalgar poll. I mean, the Trafalgar poll shows me that there's a lot of work being done behind the scenes. And I, and I would imagine, Rev, there's some coordinating being done with the DeSantis and Trump campaign. I mean, Trump accepts DeSantis' I, I relevancy. There was. I mean, Trump has to realize that, that this movement is much bigger than he is. And somebody eventually will pick up that band and go. And it looks like right now it's Ron DeSantis. Now, who knows what the future holds for J.D. Vance or Josh Hawley or, or, or a, a Republican we hadn't heard of yet. I mean, you know, Blake Masters may catch fire in Arizona. I don't know. Crazy things happen in American politics. But, but Ron DeSantis has one decision to make.
And his decision is predicated on what Donald Trump does. He doesn't have to be in a hurry. I mean, he's earned his street cred with the America First world. Uh, the majority of Trump supporters believe that if Trump doesn't run, this guy would be the next best thing to run. So just be still. <laughs> be in scripture. Be still and know that I'm God. Um, Trump would like that because he kind of thinks he. Uh, anyway, <laughs> that's a little unfair to Trump. But um, but when you see the Trafalgar number, and and for those just joining, uh, Trafalgar did a poll, released a poll last night at about 10.57. I saw it this morning on Twitter. Um, has Trump at 47.9, Biden at 42.6, undecideds at 9.6. I don't buy that. There ain't an undecided American that, that knows anything about politics when it comes to not, Biden not, or not Trump. between those two. I mean, yeah. what are you waiting on? I mean, answer that. If you're one of the 9.6% undecided, what the hell are you waiting on? Well, you're waiting on? on to see who yeah, else he, runs. Are, are you waiting to see? Um, I mean, th- there, is no, th- there is no unknown there. You know what Biden is. I mean, it's clear as a bell. You know what Trump is. There's no discussing it. I mean, they are what they are. And everybody's made their mind up. 9.6% just didn't want to say it. That, that's all that is. Every one of those people are decided. They just wanted to say they're undecided because they're embarrassed to verbalize their support of Biden or embarrassed to verbalize their support of Donald Trump. Let's go to the phone. Bob in Florence. Hello, Bob. Hello. Uh, good morning, guys. Hey, wouldn't it be great um, if Dr. Sigpin could call in this morning and give us his perspective on <clears throat> what's going on in the Maryland governor race? Um, I'm an expatriate. Marylander, although I probably haven't spent much time there in the last 50 years, uh, but I kind of try to follow it uh, as best I can. Does the name Spiro Agnew sound familiar? It does. Yeah, well, he, he was a Republican, and he uh, he was elected. Um, Maryland's a, a very strange place uh, in, in the, well, I don't know if it's strange, but the um, uh, the Eastern Shore farmers team up with the western, far western county uh, mountain folk uh, to try to offset the um, uh, the liberal enclave that makes up of Baltimore and Washington suburban areas. And, and that's the way it's been, although uh, the former are, have been steadily losing uh, as things go. And you're absolutely right. How does it is? Is um, the current governor is, is is he really a Republican? I don't think so. But uh, anyway, geez, if Doctor Sigpen's listen, Doc, call in, give us some perspective. <laughs> Thank you, Bob. Appreciate that. That would be an interesting um, opinion to get this morning from Doctor Sigpen. He's a a Marylander. I grew up there. Is very well aware and familiar with the politics of that state. It's just unusual to me when I started reading last night, and we got somebody going to call in here in just a bit from um, uh, Anthony Russo. About um about Hogan endorsing a candidate, Trump endorsing a candidate. The point I try to make this morning, and and I've always said politics is math. I mean, it is what it is. Uh, there there are twice as many registered Democrats in Maryland as there are Republicans, and Larry Hogan, a Republican, won. How? How did Larry Hogan win? How did Spiro Agnew? I think Agnew was a former um governor of Maryland, if I'm not mistaken. Um, how does a Republican? really espouse Republican views and values and get 33% of Democrats to buy in. Um, Here's what I think will happen. You ready? I think the Trump-endorsed candidate will win. I think Dan Cox will beat the Hogan-endorsed candidate in the primary, but it's still going to be a Democrat governor of Maryland. 
Uh, and then you'll have a scapegoat. You know, you know, it, Hogan can say, well, I mean, if only you'd have nominated Kelly Schultz, we'd have a Republican governor. But but what's the difference in Larry Hogan and a Democrat governor of Maryland? I guess that's the best way to, to kind of end it up. What, what is the difference? What is the different? Uh, what is different about Larry Hogan governing Maryland than if a moderate Democrat had governed Maryland? 843-661-0937. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. 843-661-0937 is our number. Um, I think Mike's going to try to reach out to uh, political analyst, host of The Truth Will Set You Free podcast, Anthony Russo. We're going to talk a little bit about what's happening in Maryland today. And the interesting part of this race is not that we care who's going to be the governor or not in Maryland, but you've got an establishment incumbent governor endorsing a candidate, and then you've got Trump endorsing another candidate and a primary. That's going to be kind of a precursor of other things to come. Um, I'm on the record now. No way Liz Cheney wins. I mean, I've been concerned about, you know, the number Good. of Democrats that cross over. Um, they spent about $3.5 million in Democrat outreach in Wyoming, and there's just not a lot of Democrats. I it's, say it's, they could about give, give every Democrat about well, 100 it, bucks. It, it's about an 80-20 state. You know, we, we like to say wow. South Carolina is a 60-40 uh, kind of state. It's about an 80-20 number in Wyoming. Um, it is probably as red as any state in America. And, and let's be honest and candid. I mean, why is it red or why is it as red as it is? Um, the majority of people that live in Wyoming are white. You know, and uh, I don't know about the college educated. I don't know about the uh, educational makeup uh, of the demographic. But um, but that's why Wyoming is. Um, in other words, when I ran for lieutenant governor, I'll never forget Caden Dawson, former um, SCGOP chairman. Uh, we're talking about, you know, the the margin of victory and what had to be done or not be done. And, and I can remember Caden said, this ain't Wyoming. I mean, this isn't a, um, a slam dunk. Once you win the primary, you're well positioned to win the general. But this isn't Wyoming. I mean, you know, Wyoming is probably as Republican-leaning a state as anywhere in America. Um, so there are a lot of, I don't know, demographic backstories here when you look at Wyoming, when you look at Maryland. Um, but, but the interesting part of this race in Maryland is the fact that you've got a Trump-endorsed candidate running against Hogan, who has been, I would argue, a Trump antagonist. And he's taken center stage on some of the, like, meet the press and this week with George Stephanopoulos. You know, I, for one, don't believe there's a battle for the heart and soul of the Republican Party. Larry Hogan wants to believe that. And um, Sununu and some of these other establishment Republicans will still argue there's a battle for the heart and soul. I say it's two to one for every one establishment Republican voter. There's about two America first Republican voters. Mm -hmm. I don't know about Maryland. I think I understand South Carolina pretty well. And I think that's safe to say it's about two to one here in, uh, in the Palmetto State. But in Maryland, uh, we, we've got kind of a different story. They will vote today in the primary. Uh, political and uh, analyst and host of The Truth Will Set You Free podcast, Anthony Russo, is with us. Anthony, good morning. How are you? Good morning. How you doing, brother? So what are we to make of uh, the primary? I looked this morning. There are twice as many registered Democrats as Republicans. But Hogan, the Republican, is the incumbent governor. He's endorsed a candidate named um, Kelly Schultz, if I'm not mistaken. Trump has endorsed Dan Cox. What lies ahead? Yeah, so this is a really interesting, uh, is an interesting race. And as you said, Maryland is considered a blue state. And Larry Hogan, as a moderate or as a establishment Republican, has done pretty well in that state. And he uh, he's, he's relatively popular. But what we're going to see right now in this primary is how big of a role does that America First Donald Trump 
um, I guess, push mean, not to, we, we've been talking about this for a while, but how much does he mean to the moderate states, the more moderate Republicans? Uh, can he still push that through? Do people, are people done even in the moderate side? Are they done with the establishment, uh, Republicans or rhinos? So Dan Cox is big into civil liberties, freedom, and not civil liberties, I'm sorry, uh, individual freedoms. He was, he was fighting back against all the mandates that Larry Hogan did. That's why Larry Hogan was so popular. He was he was pushing blue policies in a lot of ways, and uh, and Dan Cox fought against them. He he supported a guy that refused to wear a mask to to uh, voting booths. He was he's also very big on abortion uh, on, on the pro life side and and making sure abortion is no longer allowed in the state of Maryland. Which that to me is going to be the most interesting thing, because a lot of people have questioned what is more inter- more what is more important to voters uh, in this upcoming election. Are there going to be Republicans that are more uh, economy leaning, or are there some middle ground Republicans that are still going to vote based on that pro-life or pro-choice stance? So there's a couple things on the ballot here, and in a, in a purplish state that I've been calling it all morning, uh, Dan Cox and Kelly Schultz could be a real indicator of of the power of Trump and the power of abortion on the uh, on the on the ballot. But Anthony, from the deep south, I mean, it's obvious America first plays well here. Maryland's a different animal. I accept that and appreciate that. But but I'll make a prediction. Cox wins the primary, loses the general, and and the national media says this is why Trump is a danger. This is why America First will never. I mean, America First isn't going to play well in Maryland. Is that fair to say? I mean, we know that before the first vote is cast. America First is not going to be the dominant political force in Maryland politics. Correct, and I agree. It could be. It's going to be interesting, and I I do think that he probably if, if Kelly wins the the primary. She will most likely, uh, I do believe, become the first woman female governor uh, of Maryland. Now, if Dan Cox wins, it's going to show the power that Trump has in the even moderate side of the Republican Party. But he probably will not fare well against the Democrats. The Democratic primary, though, has, uh, I believe, 10, 10 candidates. So they might cannibalize themselves. They, you know, they might have already they might have already done that. Uh, I haven't been following the Democratic side as much as I probably should have. But. Uh, I do agree with you. They're, they're, the media will find a way to paint that as a failure for Trump, no matter how they, you know, how it swings. <laughs> well, well explained. Thank you, Anthony. Appreciate your time. Yeah, take it easy. And that's why this will be a national story because I mean, I'll predict. Um, I mean, it's it's not the the Trump force the the. The America First movement is not as solid or entrenched in Maryland politics as it is in South Carolina or in some of the other red states. I mean, Wyoming would be an example. We're talking about Liz Cheney a second ago. But but it seems to me we're headed to a place where Dan Cox wins and in, in the primary loses in the general and the national media says, you know, the Trump phenomenon only has so much appeal. But you're talking about a state that has twice as many registered Democrat voters as Republicans. Um, Here's an interesting question, and this is something I was highly critical of Jim DeMint. Um, Does America first care about Maryland? I mean, you know going in that that you've got to, but if you're going to be a Republican, you've got to pretend to be a Democrat. I mean, really and truly, that's what Anthony just said. Uh, Hogan advanced a lot of blue state policies. So does it matter? I mean, do you want somebody like Hogan on Meet the Press with a Republican with an R beside his name espousing views that contradict where two-thirds of the party, uh, the base, believe the party should uh, be headed? That, that's kind of the contrast we've got here. And rest assured, guys, the reason Hogan is popular is he opposes Trump. I mean, nobody knows what Larry Hogan's doing in, done in Maryland. 
I mean, he comes out and says how good a job he's done as governor and they've done this and they've done. Nobody knows that to be true. Chuck Todd has no idea how good a governor or not Larry Hogan has been, but he knows he opposes Trump and that's good enough. That gets him, you know, invited back again and again and again and again. Blue state street cred. Of course. I mean, no question about it, but I I think that's the, the dynamic or dilemma as we speak today. And I think Anthony nailed it when he said the interesting part of this story. I mean, how many of you care who the governor of Maryland is? I don't. But the interesting part of this story is um, in a non-America first state, and I would imagine there are some America firsters in Maryland, nowhere near as many as there are in the South or, uh, you know, in, in, in Wyoming or some of these other states we talk a lot about. But, but are there enough America first Republicans in Maryland, uh, a blue state? I mean, RCP, Real Clear Politics, has it um, likely Democrat, no matter who the Republican nominee is. But Cox will give the media scapegoat. If Cox wins the primary, that's still encouraging to me because that means the majority of Republican primary voters, even in Maryland, even as few as there are, still find the America First agenda and and, and Trump's persona to be more engaging or optimistically, uh, you know, perceived than um, the Hogan endorsement. So if Hogan's done a good job and Hogan endorses Kelly Schultz, and she gets beat by Dan Cox in the primary. Did did Hogan ever have any Republican street cred? No. And I think that's why this is such an such an interesting point. The, 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 we always talk about okay, you got the establishment on this side, you got the America First on this side. I mean, I think most people accept that. I mean, you got the Romneys of the world, and you've got the the JD Vance Blake Masters of the world. I don't know how many people. In the Senate, I'm thinking about the Senate right now. I don't know how many U.S. senators are truly committed to America First. I mean, I, you know, I know there's some of the House. You got the Freedom Caucus, and they, I mean, they, they you know, they they basically have a a caucus within the caucus that espouses some of the America First views and Rand values. Paul? Rand Paul would be uh, as close as anybody I can think of. Josh Hawley. Um, I know Ted Cruz says things. I know Josh Hawley says things. But I still believe in my heart of hearts, some of that is political opportunism. And I get it. I mean, political politicians are no different than anybody else. Um, we're opportunistic in our lives. I mean, if you find a place that you think you can make a little hay, what do you do? You take a chance there. I mean, so when we say that, well, politicians always do that, we always do that. I mean, people in general find the path of least resistance. I mean, don't we? I mean, are we really looking at them as, as if they're, okay, their, their burning desire to find an easier way is fundamentally different than the way we live our lives. I mean, don't we live our lives seeking an easier and better way? So if the Republican electorate, um, or, or and if you're pretty convinced that you're, the Republican electorate are heading here, wouldn't it make sense you're going to head there as well? So when I criticize Cruz about, you know, Johnny come lately to the party, or I criticize um, Josh Hawley about never having said much of these sorts of things before, it's it's kind of odd that I would be critical because these guys are reacting to where it appears their party's base is going. Uh, In other words, you kind of got to give them a little credit. You know, I've not always been here, but it's obvious where the voters are, so I better join my voters if I want to impact or affect change. But Rand Paul, you're right, is probably, I mean, when you look at America first in its political orthodox sense, it's anti-globalist, it's anti-interventionist. I mean, that's probably the two central themes that are there. There are a lot of nuances. And Rand Paul's been there for no a long time. No question about it. 
No question about it. We didn't call it America first. We didn't call it make America great again. Um, nobody ever thought Donald Trump could get elected president. But Rand Paul and his father were, were very staunch in their um, advocating for this anti-globalist, anti-interventionist agenda. And, um, you know, the, the Fed and some of these things that I think have um, I, the, the America first movement has embraced some of these um some of these agenda issues that Rand Paul has spoken on behalf of, but are there anybody else? I mean, do you believe there's any of the old guard in the U.S. Senate that, that are that are solidly? I'm not I'm talking about really, truly believing that this is the best way to govern. No, no, and that's why the, a lot of these folks are retiring. I mean, that's probably why the Republicans aren't as likely uh, to pick up control of the Senate as I mean, they still have a better than fifty percent chance, but it would be through the roof if not for some of these retirements and open seats are hotly contested and um, there are going to be a lot of open seats because Republicans have retired in some of these fairly conservative. I mean, I've got some inside information that um, the candidate, I think it's Greitens or Greetens in Missouri is just pursuing the Trump endorsement in a way nobody ever has. And there are some alignments. There are some um, associations that, are strongly encouraging Trump to endorse, but some of the politicos, some of the pollsters, some of those who provide accurate information for people willing to pay have convinced him to not do it because he's the only Republican that could lose in Missouri. Um, that's kind of this. I'll, I'll just leave it at this. From what I hear, it's a family squabble. <laughs> <laughs> and family squabbles okay. are what? Family squabbles. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. You know, the only two things that the Republicans control, I mean, obviously there's some things you control in politics, some things you don't. The two things they do control is whether or not they're, they're going to espouse this kind of extreme views on abortion and whether they're going to relitigate, rehash, relive, um, recreate the the 2020 presidential election. I mean, those are the, the polling is clear. I mean, if, if the Republican Party begins to adopt extreme positions on abortion, and Mike Rickenbaugh and I had kind of a conversation um, Friday about some of the uh, some of the amendments that will be offered. There'll be a thousand amendments offered at the South Carolina General Assembly in 2023 when they go back in session. There'll be some pre-filing of bills, and and but the amendments will be just as as random and and out there as you can imagine. And if the Republicans begin adopting or even offering some of these real extreme amendments on abortion. The, the voters are going to make them pay for that. And and I've seen uh, a lot of polling information that leads me to believe if you're seeking office in 2022 or 24, don't talk about 20. I mean, you can have an opinion and you can integrate or intertwine in some way, shape or form. That is part of your platform. But you better not lead where the election was stolen. Now, Blake Masters is doing that in Arizona. Arizona is one of the um, the states that we believe some things don't. It just don't add up. I mean, I'm not saying what happened because I don't have any idea what happened. But in some of these states where things just don't add up, you can probably get away with it than you can uh, in the other states. But but the, the polling I've seen, especially post-Roe, the polling I've seen clearly shows that that's where the Republicans can get themselves. I mean, there, there's no doubt there's something happening within the party where they're swapping in soccer moms for Walmart dads. I mean, they're, they're, that's unquestionable. The Walmart dad voted Democrat. He's voting Republican now. The soccer mom voted Republican. 
she's voting Democrat today. Don't I don't have any. I mean, I got an idea as to why that's happening. And I think there's um kind of a culture and societal dynamic there. Um, some of the uh, some of the educated soccer moms believe they're a little bit above. So some of the folks that go to Walmart and and they'd rather not associate politically nor socially with some of those um, unwashed and uneducated folk. And uh, I think that's a political reality. But I don't care if you're a Walmart dad soccer mom. If you're someone running as a Republican in 22 or 24, don't hold extreme positions on abortion. You're going to pay for it and don't relitigate nor relive the 2020 election. You can have a view on abortion, and you can be pro-life. You can be solidly pro-life, but but you can't go down the road of wanting to put a 14-year-old in jail, a scared 14-year-old who gets pregnant, you know, wanting to put her in jail for having an abortion. That's a pretty extreme position, but that amendment's coming. I mean, I've, I've been to the state house. I know how it works. That amendment at some point in time is coming down the pike, and the Republicans better have uh, the sound judgment to say, look, we're pro-life. We, we want to do everything we can to protect life, but we're not putting a 14-year-old in prison. I mean, we're just not going to do that. Uh, they would, in fact, riff from what I've read, some of the uh, some of the rumoring or some of the rumors I've heard about pre-filed bills is, or pre, you know, some of the amendments to come is um, not only to take the 14-year-old in charge with a crime, but to take her out of juvenile status. There's some legal language there, but to basically upcharge, to treat her as an adult, uh, as if she were 18. Um, and then criminally, I don't know, civilly or criminally, I don't know what sort of a offense it would be. But if you start holding those extreme positions, uh, the voters are going to get real nervous about that. And I'm talking about moderate Republicans. I'm talking about independent or Republican-leaning independents. I'm not talking about the diehard pro-lifer. Um, there's some of that. But, I, you know, and we talked a little bit about this. Uh, once Roe got overturned, the states were going to have the authority to make laws and, and develop policy. And, and out of that comes freedom and, and political capital. But you got to be careful at how you execute uh, as you go down that. And I just I would be very, very cautious about how much I said about Trump in the 2020 presidential election. I mean, I think a lot of these folks believe something doesn't add up. Uh, something doesn't make sense. You think the states have done a good enough job, though, addressing it with election law? I mean, th- from that angle? I think some have and some have not. I mean, the states you would expect to have would go with re- Republican houses or Republican chambers of, of the General Assembly and, and ulti- Republican governors. <clears throat> Ultimately, we can't obviously go back and change the results if you believe that something happened. But you know, all, what you can do is fix the law so it doesn't happen. I think it's forward. better than it was. I mean, could it be better than it is? Of course, it can always be a little bit better. I mean, the perfect Should, should world, we have confidence if, if the, those of us that believe something was up? Should we have confidence going into 22 and 24? Cautiously optimistic. Okay. Um, I think you got to be guarded. I think you got to be aware that there's still a movement afoot that wants to. I mean, Wisconsin did away with drop boxes, but the courts decided a lot of this. I mean, in retrospect, the courts decided that what happened in 20 should have never happened anyway. And, and let's be honest, guys, Trump was not prepared. I mean, he talked a lot about it. Remember, he said there's going to be so much cheating going on. You won't imagine the cheating. But they weren't, uh, they weren't lawyered up. They didn't have the legal parts of this, the political parts of this in place that were to protect against these sorts of things happening. But to, to your question, I mean, I, I am, I mean, I feel better about this election than I did the 2020. But, but a lot of that was COVID. 
you know, I mean, social distancing and people afraid to stand in line. And I mean, the Democrats saw that as an opportunity to change the rules and they successfully changed the rules. And, uh, but I'm just saying, see what we're doing now. I mean, see what you and I've mm-hmm. just done. I mean, this conversation has morphed into what the election was stolen. Yep. And I think you got to be very, very careful about how much you talk about that as we head, and I'm not talking about in South Carolina. You get away with it here. Wyoming, you get away with it there. Arizona, Blake Masters apparently can get away with it. I'm talking about in some of these swing states, the Pennsylvanias, the Ohios. J.D. Vance better be real careful about how much he says about abortion, how much he says about January 6th, how much he says about the 2020 election. I just think there's more bad than good, and I would focus on a pro-worker, pro-American agenda. I mean, obviously, he's got to have a position on these sorts of issues. I just wouldn't make them in my top two or three. Take a break. Back in just a minute. Welcome back to the summer doldrums. <laughs> Wake up Carolina in July. I mean, we, we said earlier, and I'll say it again, the, the month of July and the first part of August is always the hardest time of the year to do this job. Would you agree with that, Rev? I would think so. I mean, the, the cupboard's a bit bare on content. Yeah. I mean, people are, um, I mean, we've settled our primaries here in South Carolina. And we had some a big, other busy lead up to our primaries. They obviously have happened. The The general election hasn't started yet as, in, you know, in earnest as far as the campaigning. And, uh, and it is summertime, and people do vacation during the month of July. We get to Labor Day, and it's back in high gear, and people begin to pee. And, I mean, there's a lot at stake here. you got Republicans trying to take over the Senate and House. I looked at 538 this morning. Um, Nate Silver kind of does a uh, – not weird. It's just different. Um, he runs models. He doesn't do polling. He runs models. I mean, he does some polling, but the majority of his business is modeling. And in some of the computer-generated models, 87 of 100 models, the Republicans win the House. I think that's a 90% chance. I think there's a 90% chance. That I don't the know what to think about Nate Silver. I follow him a little bit on Twitter, and it just seems he's a lot of opinion. Well, here's he was more accurate when he was broke. I mean, there, there you go. I, I mean, a lot of pollsters and a lot of guys like him, extremely talented. I mean, unbelievably smart. I mean, very, very understanding of what he does. But somebody paid him to make sure the outcomes looked a certain way and the narrative was a certain way. I mean, it happens on both sides. I mean, Rasmussen. I think to some degree is, is kind of the other side of this argument. Um, Trafalgar is paid by Republicans. So let's be honest. I mean, Robert gets a lot of his funding from Republicans. So, um, you know, I, 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 I'll give an example. I think in the Trafalgar poll, well, I mean, maybe I'm wrong here. Uh, I thought that Russell's numbers were juiced a bit. Remember in the Trafalgar poll, um, Russell uh, uh, Russell's numbers were 45-ish. Yeah. Uh, Ross's were 25-ish, and I remember saying, I might have said it on the air, that seems a bit high to me. Well, he ended <laughs> up getting 51, right. but this was before Ross said what, what he said about Liz Cheney. That really got, I mean, that that's kind of throwing the, the waving the white flag, throwing the towel in. I ain't winning, but I'm going to lose under my under my terms. Um, but I always thought that, I mean, I, I, I'm not saying you rig a poll. I'm not trying to argue that. But but I think when people are, are paying for your work to be done, um it has to be trustworthy, but but there needs to be a certain bias about this. So Nate Silver, um, I think Nate Silver at one time was more accurate than he is today because I think his accuracy has been affected by his income. And I think liberal causes pay him a lot of money. ABC News pays him a lot of money to be their official pollster and, uh, and data gatherer. But it gives the uh, Republicans a 53% chance of winning the Senate. 100 models, 53 times the Republicans win the Senate. Um, th- this will hinge on J.D. Vance, Dr. Oz, Herschel Walker. Uh, I'm I'm concerned about Walker. 
Uh, Dr. Scott Kaufman is here with us. I'm concerned about Walker, Scott, because Kemp's running seven ahead. He's running three behind. And we can argue this poll or that poll or the other poll, but there are two polls out there that have Kemp ahead six or seven, but Walker behind two or three. That means he's running about nine points behind Mm -hmm. the the governor. Yeah, and before I answer that question or make a comment there, I'm going to do something here that's going to shock you. I'm going to give Trump some credit here. Uh Uh, You just said how things are a little bit slow right now. Maybe Trump's thinking, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about announcing, but I'm going to hold off a little bit to get the conversation going, get people like you and the Rev talking yeah. about it. That gets him more in the news. Well, but he he has, yeah. He's been encouraged uh, by some I mean, I, I've got friends who who've told me this, that no matter what he decides, whether to run or not, he's been encouraged to wait till after the midterms. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I don't know if he waits. I don't have any idea. I think he's made his mind up. Now, he's not announced making his mind up, but... um. But but I, I saw the um, Trafalgar poll late last night. I think it broke at about ten fifty. Uh, I was already in bed. I saw it this morning. Trump at forty seven point nine, Biden at forty two point six. Uh, undecided is nine point six. They're liars. I mean, they're liars. Nobody's undecided about Trump and Biden. I mean, every they don't want to verbalize they're voting for Biden or Trump. I've got a serious question. Um, where do the Democrats go? From Biden. I mean, in other words, I mean, you, you've admitted, I mean, it's been a catastrophe. It's been a, it's been a kind of a, a drumbeat of negativity after negativity after negativity, um, intertwined with a little incompetence and not able to just, it doesn't appear to be up for the job. Um, but where do the Democrats go from Joe Biden? Well, first of all, the Georgia, the Georgia point. Yes, yeah, yeah, you're Walker, right. Was... Walker, Walker's running some trouble there. There's no doubt about it. Um, questions, I mean, he's made comments about, Air from China coming over here, uh, questions about, he said he's, he's attacked uh, fathers who aren't there for their children, yet it turns out maybe he had some additional children he never even talked about. But <laughs> he's still within the margin of error. So, and he's still a football hero, and, the, and that, so, that carries some weight. I mean, so it really those does. are things to think about. Um, as for where the Democratic Party goes, that's anybody's guess. Um, if Biden announces that he's going to seek another term, which I hope he doesn't. I mean, if, if after the midterms, um, that he's going to run for the presidency a second time, I just don't see. I think most Democrats are going to fall in line behind him. There still is the possibility that somebody from the progressive wing will say, "Time out, um, no, this this is a bad idea," and they may be challenged. I, I think it's a real possibility. Um, but if Biden decides that uh, to not to run in twenty twenty four. Which I think is a is a possibility as well, but he'll wait till after the midterms. Then, yeah, I mean, who's the person going to be? I mean, Kamala Harris obviously is somebody who could be considered, but uh, she carries baggage of her own. Um, there's talk about the governor of Kentucky. I can't remember his name uh, as a possibility. He's someone who's reached across party lines uh, and has has run up a pretty good record there. But but is he going to have the the ability to? get the the support that is necessary to to win does he have the name recognition to build the support necessary to win the nomination um uh cory booker's another person out there who who maybe could run but the party itself is just so divided right now there there isn't that individual like a donald trump or if trump doesn't run a ron DeSantis who i think the party could rally behind there just is not the enthusiasm 
that I think we were seeing among Republicans. Is there any chance that Biden doesn't finish this term? I mean, there's some scuttlebutt out there. Well, the New York Times has written some things recently. And I think when the, when the New York Times says it's okay to question whether Biden should run or not, and they reported in the New York Times uh, Siena poll about 60-some-odd percent of Republicans, excuse me, Democrats, don't want Biden to run again. Um, that, that's kind of a, that's a get-out-of-jail-free car to go find somebody else. Um, is there any chance that Biden doesn't finish this term? Well, that poll you talked about, there's also polls out there that find that if Biden were to run, you'd have about 90% of Democrats who say, no, we'll stand behind the guy. But they're voting against Trump. Oh, I, mean, I know. I, mean, I understand, you, you know that. I understand I mean, that. That's, if and, if and you the, were the nominee... That number would be 90% if Trump was considered the eventual, you know, foe. Right. I, I think Biden will finish out his term, but I think he's going to make a decision after the midterms as to whether he's going to seek another term. My hope is, no matter what happens in the midterms, my hope is that he says, you know what, I'm going to step down. I mean, the guy's going to be 82 years old um, when when um, when we get to 2024. And, uh, I mean, he's had a, he's had a number of missteps. But overall, I mean, this his administration is is really it's it the poll numbers are so bad for him. And while there are some polls that suggest it's not having as big of an impact at the state level as expected, we could look, for instance, at the at the Pennsylvania Senate race, for instance. If you look at the Pennsylvania gubernatorial race, it is having an impact. And so these are things the Democratic Party is going to have to look at. And so what I'm hoping is that a lot of people behind the scenes are saying to Biden, look, no matter what happens come November, tell the American people you're done. You're not going to seek a second term. And that way we can find somebody new to jump into the race. But, but Scott, in all seriousness, the majority of Trump supporters accept his frailty. I mean, they accept his flaws. They accept the fact that he says things when when it's probably better to leave, leave things unsaid. Um, I don't I don't think the Trump supporter has ever not accepted the flaws of their candidate. Um, they rally around his strong points. They like the bravado. They like the brashness. They like the speaking of his mind. The, the concern I have about the Biden supporter is not willing to accept that something's wrong. I mean, th- th- there's, a, there's a cognitive decline here that is extremely obvious. And I think we as Americans have an obligation to address those sorts of issues. We can disagree on policy. And I think the majority of Trump supporters wish he wouldn't say things at certain times a certain way. But it seems to me anytime you go down the road of cognitive decline and his mental mental capacities, you, you, we can't talk about that. I think it we, we must discuss whether or not the guy is all there. Well, but we could also make the same arguments about Donald Trump if you wanted. And but there Trump never shook hands with a man who's not there. I mean, I mean, but Trump Biden, even the his own father was born. But I mean, Biden's <laughs> done this twice. I mean, you you can't. I mean, I'm not trying to pick a fight here. I guess I am. Um, <laughs> well, you can't you can't dismiss some of the optics and some of the um, some of what we see. Uh, our lying eyes don't deceive <laughs> us. At some point, in I mean, you've got to accept. I don't care how ardent a supporter you are and how much you don't like Trump. I mean, I get that. We all understand that political reality. But at some point in time, somebody with a D beside their name has to question whether this guy's mental faculties are to a place that allows him to do one of the toughest jobs in the world. That has to be on the table if we're serious about our country. Well, again, what I'm, let me make two points here. One is that we can make the same arguments about Trump. I mean, Trump didn't even know where his own father was You can was make an argument. I don't think you can make the same argument. Well, I, depend, again— we're talking about different points of view here politically as okay. well. 
But I will I will argue, I will agree with the fact that, yes, I mean, Biden has had some missteps turning around. And there's not somebody there not remembering names. Um, it, it reminds me of, of Gerald Ford, who was much younger. But Gerald Ford, the, the connection was made to the fact, wow, the guy fa- falls on the stairs of Air Force One, which suggests not only is he physically unstable, but that suggests some kind of problems with his mental faculties. Biden falls down up the stairs of going up the stairs of Air Force One. We see the same kind of thing. And then the, the instances you talked about. Um, I, I do believe that cognitive decline or not, that the Democratic Party needs to move in a new direction because what Biden has done or not done has not been good for the party. It's not just him. The party itself was facing divisions even before he was elected. But what the, the direction the, that the nation has been going under Biden, um, it. It's not good. If you look at the poll numbers, I mean, what's about 50 percent more Americans believe the country's going the wrong direction than in the right direction. Uh, and so we really need to find somebody new. Does does a Gavin Newsom, Ron DeSantis matchup interest you more than a Joe Biden, Donald Trump matchup? Um, Coming out with I, the old, in with the new, you know, DeSantis being yeah. the new firebrand of America first, Newsom being the, the the liberal, I mean, you know, the new photogenic, cosmopolitan liberal. I mean, isn't that kind of what we're waiting on anyway? I, For me personally, yes. I think there would be those individuals out there who would say, gosh, well, I'd like to see a replay of 2020, 2020 again. Uh, the brashness of Trump out there saying all kinds of crazy things. Biden trying to fight back and see how he does. And I think there are some Democrats who say, gosh, I hope it is Trump because that is going to really energize the Democratic base. They're going to vote for the Democrat because they just can't stand Trump. Um, But if Trump doesn't run, what motivates the Democrat base to vote? And that's going to be the issue. That's going to be the issue. Um, In other conditions, I think the Democrats would be in really good shape right now. I mean, you've got the the January 6th committee hearings going on right now. The witch hunt. Which is drawing a lot of attention to Donald Trump, drawing a lot of attention to the Republican Party and what Republican Party officials are doing in states like Georgia. The abortion issue, that should be a rallying cry to many Democrats who say, you know what, this has got to change. Um, And so you put those two things together, you would think, my gosh, Democrats should be able just to have no problem winning the presidency and holding on to Congress in 2024. But there's the there's the economic issue. Seventy six percent of Americans say the economy is a very important issue to them, that that more than anything else is what's going to decide how they vote. Inflation hit record high nine point one percent last month. What was it? Wholesale inflation rate was over eleven percent. Gas prices are still very high. You still have many Americans who are saying I have I I have to make a decision between is it going to be gasoline or is it going to be food or rent? these numbers are starting to have an impact. Uh, the, and I think the, the Pennsylvania gubernatorial race is an example of that. So uh, 30 seats in the House that that Democrats are in trouble. So if, if it wasn't for the economy, I think Democrats would be in really good shape. Well, I mean, but, a lot of people, yeah. I've heard this, man, I'll talk about abortion. Let's get gas prices under control. Uh-huh. Let's get grocery prices under control. Um, I'm trying to think of what I got yesterday, Rev. I was going to tell you this this mm-hmm. morning. Um, I stopped somewhere and got... Yeah, here you go. Um, five chicken, uh, boneless chicken wings, a medium diet uh, Pepsi, and it's like $9.47. No side, just a uh, medium drink and and five boneless wings was 
dollars. I mean, wow. I mean, it just caught me off guard, and it mm-hmm. and it kind of is beginning to make people angry. And I think people who have real strong opinions about abortion are like, hey, we'll have that discussion. But but right now, I, I'm dying. I mean, I don't have any money. I can't hardly pay pay my bills. You have a call? Okay, let's go there. Uh, Carl uh, wants to chime in this morning. Hey, Carl. Hey, hold on a second. Oh, sure. Uh, yeah. <laughs> hey, um, let me ask this. Okay, so you've asked you've asked the professor there about um, his opinion on on um, Biden, but he he talks about polls, and 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 he says that he hopes that Biden does not run. And is it because of polls? Or is it because of the job that he's doing? I mean, it can't be because of what American people think. I mean, there has to be something that's going on that he does not want Biden to run again. I mean, that, I mean, that's kind of remarkable that, oh, I don't want him to run again because these polls are awful. I mean, is it because he thinks he's going he's gonna to lose as if he won the first time? I mean, is this, this is ridiculous. Okay, Carl, I'll let him answer. Thank you for the call. Appreciate it. I Um, don't want him to run because I believe that he has that what he has done um, policy wise has not has ultimately been very harmful. Um, Let's take, for instance, Ukraine. Um, I do not think it was a good idea for the United States to even think about having the Ukraine enter NATO. I think that that was provocative to to the Russians because we're getting into the Russian, certainly an area the Russians consider their sphere of influence. Uh, and once you went down the road of saying, not only do we believe the Ukrainians should be considered for membership in NATO, but then you begin taking actions that draw us into a war there. We're not, we're not official. Well, we're not involved in a full capacity, but we are involved. Um, the Russians then react, counteract with measures that have an impact on oil prices Um which, of course, has an impact upon inflation rates. I think also that Biden has done a very good job, very poor job with messaging. He, he, he ran on a message of build back better. What happened to that message? It has disappeared. There is no messaging. There is no vision. It is simply reaction to what's happening abroad. It is simply a reaction to what is happening domestically. It is simply a bunch of policies that have no vision, no message behind them whatsoever. Uh, And last but not least, I think he's done a very poor job of bringing the Democratic Party together, not saying that it was that it could be done, but he's he's just has been unable to find the, the line that 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 fine line that would draw the two sides together. And a lot of that goes back to the fact that the messaging has disappeared. I think he's been a failure. Okay. You uh, hold on to that because I want to come back and, and we got to take a break. But I want to kind of stay in that vein uh, and discuss even further with Dr. Scott Coppin, history chair, Francis Marion University. We'll be back in just a few moments. Welcome back. Tuesday morning, 843-661-0937. Dr. Scott Coppin is with us. That's kind of rare that he would announce a failure. Uh, but you think Joe Biden has failed? I mean, I just, you said a second ago, I, I don't like saying that, but I mean, the truth is the truth is the truth. I mean, I'll give him credit. The The infrastructure bill was a big deal, but there's just so many things out there that have gone wrong. And I mean, one of the key things a president needs to do is provide a vision for the country and stick with it. And this president has not done that. The message has disappeared. It has been lost 
and as and, and it has only added to the Democrats' problems. We need new blood. Okay. Having said that, you you and I were discussing, I mean, we don't agree a lot. We respectfully disagree mm-hmm. with one another. Um, and there's some common ground here with Scott and I. I mean, we, we have some opinions about welfare reform and some other the work fair. And, mm-hmm. um, but, but I want to get to something you said that, that I think we do have um, some agreement with. And that is, um, let, let's leave term limits alone for a second. Mm-hmm. Um, age limits. You were talking about Trump's age. Rev was talking about the only problem I have with Trump is he'll be 80 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, you're not king of the world. I'm not king of the world. But if we were, would we institute an age limit on, on how old you could be? Pelosi's 80 years old. McConnell's nearly 80 years old. Schumer's in his mid-70s. Um, every position of leadership in either party, or by and large, people in their 70s, if not 80s, how did we get here? And should we address the age of leadership in either party? Or the presidency. I mean, we're, we're a nation whose median age is 39, and the leadership in Washington, I bet, averages 77, 78, 79 years old. Is it time to address that in some meaningful fashion? Um, how do we get here? Because being a member of Congress has become a career. Um, it was never that, it was not that way early in American history, but it's become that way. It's become a career. And it shouldn't be. It's, I don't think it should okay, be. Okay, we agree I mean, that. I'd be willing to look at, I'd be willing to look at term limits okay. for members of Congress. Um, should we have an age limit? That's a tough one for me because there are some people out there who are older, who are as, you know, sharp as a, sharp as a tack. They, they are. There's some 24 no, year olds who are sharp as a tack. Yeah. And what I would, I would argue, and I'm going to draw a, a military analogy here. Years and years ago, there was a Marine commandant named, um, his last name was Macaulay. And he said, you know what? It is time for me and, and for other older officers in the Marine Corps to retire, to give younger officers a chance to rise up the ranks, to get those promotions, and, and to bring those new ideas and new blood. I, I, I think that those individuals who are members of Congress who are getting older should think similarly. Um, yeah, you might be really good at what you do. You might be able to bring the money in. Uh, you might be sharp as a tack. I mean, I'll, I'll give Nancy Pelosi all the credit in the world. Uh, people like Senator Grassley in, in Iowa. I mean, these are individuals who just ha- are find a way to, ma- to maintain that huge base of support. But I think we need I think it's it's also fair for those individuals to say, you know what, maybe it's time to step down to allow for that fresh blood to come in and, and to... But they're to not going to do it themselves, Scott. No, I mean, they're, they're not. We're going to have to make them. There'll have to be some change to the Constitution that disallows. I mean, Pelosi will stay there. I mean, the Strom Thurmond stayed there until he oh, was I know. 100. Yeah. I mean, if he were alive today, we'd probably still be voting for Strom Thurmond. I think it's got to be addressed. To believe Washington can... Washington does not have the ability to self-correct. I mean, it just doesn't. I mean, it's drunk with power. They abuse that power. They love having that power, whether you've got an R beside your name or a D beside his name. And and I think Trump embodies the the burning desire that people have to see th- something uh, very, very different. Well, but don't forget, Trump also talked about how he would enjoy being president for life. Uh, whether he was joking or not, we can talk well, about that. Well, he said what everybody, but, what everybody <laughs> thinks. I mean, Pelosi would love to be speaker for life. Uh, I mean, Obama McConnell would about winning a third term. Yeah, McConnell would love to be minority leader for life. He'd rather but, be majority but, leader, but he'll accept being minority leader. But what you're talking about would require some major changes. It would require us to have maybe term limits. It would sure. require us to get rid of of Citizens United. It would require us probably to change uh, the way the way uh, obviously the way we finance elections, um, and that's just not going to happen. But but in an era and an age 
where we don't find much common ground, that is a place that it seems both parties find some agreement. I mean, you know, you're right. Our our leadership is too old. Your leadership is too old. Let's do something about this. But the leadership just simply is not going to go along with that. Nancy Pelosi would would lay in a hospital bed with that gavel in her hand if allowed. And Mitch McConnell would do the exact same thing. So I think to paint this as one party or another, it's just being dishonest. Well, and the other other problem is that even if you have a member of Congress who's 80 years old, if they're bringing money into your district or into your state, are you prepared to to throw them out of office? Uh, Yeah, well, the the system's built on seniority, not how good you are Mm -hmm. at the job you're trying to do. Let's go to the phone. Pat in Florence. Hello, Pat, you're on the air. Good morning, everybody. Hey, Pat. Uh, uh, since we're asking the professor's question, I just got one question also this morning. Personalities aside, then, uh, did Donald Trump do a better job as a president than Joe Biden has so far? That's all. Thank you. Have a good day. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Pat. Yes, Appreciate Scott. that. <laughs> I mean, I'm on the record. I mean, as much as I loved Reagan, and Reagan probably influenced me as much as anybody ever has because he breathed optimism uh, into my father. My father was a business guy, early 80s. Uh, you know, I mean, we know inflation and uh, the, I mean, a little bit like now. I mean, it really, I mean, the Carter malaise is reminding or uh, a lot of people are reminiscing about the Carter era with, with what we're dealing with today. But as much as I liked Reagan, Trump was a better president. I mean, when you look at getting stuff done, doing what you say you're going to do, Donald Trump was a better president than Ronald Reagan. Okay, I'm going to answer this two ways. And Carl, hold on, hold on. Just I'll get to my point of view on this. A poll just came out that looked at how well these presidents are doing in terms of leadership. Um, 33% of Americans believe that Joe Biden is doing a good job. At the same time, in Donald Trump's administration, 44% believed he was doing a good job. So the polls certainly point in that direction. The reason why I would take the opposing point of view is just because, as, as you know, I don't like what Donald Trump stood for. Um, what do you think I, he stood for, Scott? I think he stood for himself. Okay. Uh, he could talk about the American. You don't think First Biden does? I I think when it comes to protect, supporting democracy, the idea of democracy, protecting the democratic. How system, does Biden's son and and brother get so wealthy? Well, and that's that's something that I think needs to be looked into, and I'd be certainly supportive of of looking into it. Just like I think we need to look into some of these issues happening with, with the with Donald Trump in the 2020 election. I've also said, uh, you know. I still want to know what happened between Bill Clinton and and Loretta uh, uh, Lynch, uh, Lynch. Attorney General mm-hmm. Lynch. So um, I'm one of these people who who says, you know what, I want to I want to see a more ethical Washington D.C. I'm willing to support these 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 investigations, and I know there to be politics involved. But when it comes right down to it, in terms of who I think is doing a better job, I would, and I know I just called him a failure. But I would still lean toward Biden just because I think he he supports democracy what more than so, Trump did. What was in your in your opinion, and you're a smart guy? What is so dangerous about Donald Trump? Okay, he cares about himself more than anybody else. Join the club. He's in the right town to do that. I mean, if, I, I, if he's in Washington and he cares about himself more than anybody, he's in the long I mean, the line. The Democrats are putting are putting out there now that he, you know, of course, if he runs and were to get elected again, it is a existential existential threat. To democracy. What is that threat to democracy from the Democrats' perspective? Okay, he, he's an ass. He's narcissistic. He's bombastic. He's a lot of, of different things. He's selfish. He's, he, he's, you know, he puts himself before he puts anybody else. He's in the right town to do that. What is the threat? 
to democracy that Donald Trump poses? Because he believes that he should be in charge. And when things don't go his way, he turns against the system. And the end result was we had these charges, even before the election took place, these charges, oh, the election is going to be rigged. Um, and when the, when the, when the votes finally were tallied, oh, it was rigged. There were all, there were the problems in Georgia and in, Mich- and in Michigan and in Pennsylvania and in Arizona. And despite repeated recounts, including by organizations hired by Republicans themselves, like cyber ninjas in, in Arizona, he is continuing those, it's called the big lie. He's continuing to promote that, that point of view that it was rigged. And the end result is, is it raises it, it leads people to say, you know what? Democracy has failed. Democracy didn't fail. Democracy succeeded. Democracy worked. If Trump had won in 2020, you know what? Democrats would have gone back and done the same thing they did in 2016. What the hell went wrong? But Democrats won. And what Republicans need to do is instead of living in the past, like Donald Trump is and, and many other Republicans are doing, is they need to do the same thing you were just talking about, which is say, you know what? Let's stop litigating 2020. Let's look ahead of 2024. Do you think the Trump supporters crazy? I don't think the Trump supporters. Do you think they're cultish? I think there is that cultism there. I That does concern me uh, that you have individuals willing to say, I'm going to support Donald Trump come hell or high water. Um, I'm not saying they're crazy. That I, I would so not So how agree. do you explain the loyalty? I mean, you would agree because I've heard you say this before. He has as loyal a supporter as any politician in history ever has. I mean, Andrew Jackson had that sort of support. What do you make of, I mean, if, if they're a little bit crazy, a little bit cultish, and I would agree every political movement has some of that. But but explain to me, from your perspective, why Trump still has such a loyal, loyal base. I would point to a number of things. Number one, the fact that he is still seen as an outsider. Even though he spent four years in Washington, D.C., he still is that outsider, the person who is going to drain the swamp, the person who was working on that but didn't have the chance to complete the job because it was only in office for one term. You also have an individual who who, who uh, promotes policies that many of those individuals who support the America First movement believe in, anti-globalism, anti-interventionism, um, American nationalism, and they're willing to support Trump because of that. They also like Trump because Trump says what he believes, no matter how it comes out. I, you know, willing to use the four letter bomb, the four, the four letter bombs, if necessary, to explain his point of view. And they like that as well. Um, They feel that he says what he believes and it doesn't matter how it comes out. And he's not one of these people who's going to say one thing and then does something else. So you put all those things together and you have a very, very loyal following and then you add to that the fact we have a president like Joe Biden, who where we have inflation r- rampant, uh, Americans have questioning, is it going to be gasoline on the one hand or rent and food on the other? Um, and then you can throw in the mix when we were talking about during the break, the fact that Biden says, I'm going to make Saudi Arabia pariah state, then turns around and fist bumps uh, the, the, the Prince Mohammed bin Salman. And that leads those people who support Donald Trump to say, to say, you know what? There's the further proof. Politicians will say one thing, but they'll do something else. Let's stick, can you hang around one more yeah, time? Sure. I want to push back on one thing okay. because I believe Hillary is still out there saying the election in 2016 was stolen. You said that Democrats accepted it and moved well, on what happened. Well, there's a lot of people still say, and remember, Russia, 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 collusion, collusion, collusion. And if you ask Hillary today, she thinks 2016 was stolen. But yeah. you did not have you did not have the widespread effort like you did in these states to to fight against it. 
And you have a lot of Democrats like myself who say, you know what, Hillary, just go away. But that goes back to Hillary not having the loyal, intense support of a political base that's willing to go wherever this guy leads them. I'm not saying it's all good, but I think it's I think there are so many people envious of this connection a political candidate has made with a legion of people who have historically gone to the poll and voted for things they were promised but never delivered. And you have a, a candidate, Hillary Clinton, who ran a very poor campaign. Fair enough. I'll take a break. Scott's going to hang around one more second. I want to get his take uh, on, on this uh, you know, fist bump with the Saudi Arabian prince. Back in just a minute. Welcome back. Dr. Scott Kaufman, History Chair, Francis Marion University, is with us. I don't have a question, but I want to get your take on um, Biden traveling to Saudi Arabia, made a stop in in uh, in uh, Israel, and then he flies over to Saudi Arabia. Um, no question here, but, but give me your take on what you saw uh, with the president making those multiple visits. We've had numerous presidents in our history who talked about going after China, and then after they become president, what happens? China becomes one of our best friends. I mean, we can talk about that in the case of Jimmy Carter, Ronald Reagan, George Bush. Both Bushes. Political hypocrisy. Uh, well, and that's one of the reasons Americans get tired of politics. Um, Biden talked about making Saudi Arabia a pariah state because U.S. intelligence determined that the crown prince of Saudi Arabia ordered the murder, the assassination of uh, Jamal Khashoggi. And the dismembering. Uh, and dismembering of his body. Um, but oil prices are sky high. Saudi Arabia is a major oil producer and Biden decided I need to go to Saudi Arabia, see if I can mend some fences, get the Saudis to increase oil production so that it'll help bring oil prices down. So he flies to Israel to talk to the Israelis about a variety of issues. Then he flies to Saudi Arabia and he does exactly what the Saudis were hoping. Does that fist bump, which gives them an indication that U.S.-Saudi relations are in good terms. He did say, Biden said he did bring up the Khashoggi murder early on, but clearly the key issue for him is, can I get Saudi Arabia to increase oil production to bring down oil prices and inflation in the United States? But a lot of the domestic policies have led to a dependent on a dependency on Saudi Arabia to produce more oil. Saudi Arabia is probably the only country on earth, maybe Russia, that can just in a nanosecond increase production. I mean, all these other countries are producers. Didn't they kind of tell him to pound sand? Yeah, uh, pretty much, uh, pretty much. Um, but but Saudi Arabia is in a very unique position. I mean, it, once again, they can, in a nanosecond, increase production to make up the margins, whatever supply and demand and demand are. Um, does Biden know no shame? That is a question. I mean, in, in other words, is, is there no line of which? I mean, he, he's he's this green agenda that they've um, you know bought hook, line, and sinker in America, and now all of a sudden you go over and you fist bump with a guy, and then you basically beg and plead for him to produce more oil to, to, to basically get your administration out of a quagmire. But this is politics. But I mean, it's, 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 it's but, international. But is, that, is that an accurate uh, depiction? This is something that happens in international politics all the time. Uh, it happens in domestic politics as well. What a, what a presidential candidate says as a candidate doesn't necessarily jibe what happens when that person is elected because then they suddenly realize, oh my gosh, there's some issues out there I didn't think about we're going to have an impact. Um, who, who knew that oil prices would skyrocket the way they did? Um, and yeah, I mean, the United States is every, a huge every, oil Everybody knew that oil prices were going to skyrocket when America took oil production offline. I mean, we knew that. There was no way around this. I mean, when Russia, when, when Ukraine and Russia have their event, I mean, that's, that's post 
Biden shutting down the Keystone Pipeline and 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 making more difficult, you know, energy exploration and um, production in America. I mean, it, it was when you say who knew, everybody knew this is where we we're going to end up at some point in time. But oil prices had fallen as a result of COVID. The Keystone Pipeline at its maximum would produce 830,000 barrels of oil a day, which is a drop in the bucket in terms of overall U.S. use of oil. Um, you also have the fact that you've got American refineries that simply shut down. They're, they lack staff. They lack the, the equipment needed for those refineries. So we have the ability to produce the oil. The problem is refining capacity. Why was gas $2 a gallon when Trump was president? Well, when were we talking about? Well, I mean, uh, the majority of this term, gas was less than two fifty a gallon. Uh, I mean, I'll make an argument. It was because he embraced energy independence. He made as part of his agenda, we are not going to depend on Saudi Arabia. We're not going to depend on Russia. There was a mindset. There was a reality. He integrated government into that sector of the economy in a way that created optimism amongst energy producers. And energy prices were still low when Joe Biden became president. Things happen. Well, he didn't have long enough to screw it up. I mean, as soon as we gave him time enough to screw it up, here where we, you know, here's where we are. Things happen you don't anticipate. Um, I mean, we we had to anticipate that when when Biden says on a stage as a candidate for president, I'm going to run the fossil fuel fossil fuel business out of business. We had to believe that higher energy costs were inevitable. But was that simply rhetoric? That's I think that was an appeal to a pretty serious piece of rhetoric. But it's, it was an appeal to the progressive wing of the Democratic Party. That's what he was trying to do. Fair enough. And look at the gas prices. Right. Look at the gas prices now. Thank you, my Thank man. Thank you. Good to see you. Uh, we'll take a break. We'll be back in just a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Couple of callers held on for an extended period of time. Let's go there. Michael in Florence. Morning. You're on the air. Okay, gotta collect my thoughts. You know, I'm, I'm listening to this guy, and, it, and it's like, yeah, there's no... I, I don't know how you didn't just slap him and say, how could you be so dumb? I don't understand how is it that Biden's not responsible for the gas prices going up, but now he's working so hard to bring them down. You know, it, it's like you can't really have it both ways. And I, I just, you know, I keep hearing people say, well, Trump's all about himself. It was so costly for him. I mean, I don't think he gained anything from being the president. You know, probably nothing that, you know, that that he's happy about. He lost half of his net worth. Most people would probably decline to stick their neck out the way he did for a bunch of people who really don't seem to appreciate it. And and then, uh, you know, this guy talking about, well, no, the election wasn't rigged. Well, first of all, there were people who wanted to present evidence, and they wouldn't allow them to. And then we have Newsweek publishing a 21-page article bragging about how they rigged the election. And we got Zuckerberg putting millions of dollars into helping to rig it. So how they can say it wasn't rigged, and, and we do actually have um, documented evidence now with 2,000 mules, the record and the video of the people showing up at these uh, ballot drops over and over and over again, stuffing them with ballots. So I, I just, 
like I say, there's just so much when I'm listening to this guy, I don't know what to say. And I was actually going to preface this by saying, yeah, I have a bumper sticker on the back of my truck that says, if you don't like Trump, you probably won't like me. And I'm okay with that. <laughs> hey, well worth the wait, my man. Good to hear from you, and um, and you got that off your chest. I mean, I've said it, and I'll say it again. Um, as much as I revere Reagan, Trump has been the best president of my lifetime, and I don't think second is close. I mean, I really don't. And when you look at Republican primary voters, Republican-leaning voters, you know who the third most favorite president of Republican-leaning voters are since Reagan? Bill Clinton. I mean, that lets you know exactly what the Republican base thinks of, you know, the Bushes and uh, well, the Bushes in particular. Um, no, I mean, I, I hold Reagan in as high regard as you could possibly hold an American politician. I mean, if I've got an American political hero, it would probably be Ronald Reagan. But I think Trump was a better president. I think Trump did what he said he was going to do. Um, he said what he thought about certain things. And, and I think people embraced that. Now, once again, that is a newfound reality in American politics, and nobody has ever done it as offensive and brash and in your face as he did it. But I think when you look at what he said and what he did, there are a lot of consistencies there. And in a political world where people say things and they don't do what they say they were going to do, um, and I think it's just, I think it's a little bit odd that we would say Trump is the only president who lost who says you know the election was not fair how long did we investigate uh russia collusion in the 2016 election uh you know scott's a friend of mine and and there's nothing going to ever change that and he's a good decent moral ethical man and i always invite him on this show to say whatever he feels but i think rev and i'll agree scott has something that that a lot of democrats have and that's just some uh, it's something about trump i mean they just can't get past the facts that um that that Trump is um not like everybody else. He does. He's not a reverent political figure. He's not a uh, he's not a uh, well. He's a bull in a china shop is what he is. And I think they like the fact that the china shop uh, needs to be kept intact. We can't let these bulls in the china shop because the American democracy will be at risk. And I just don't buy that. I mean, I think Trump was a breath of fresh air. Um, now, once again, Trump. Uh, Trump handles himself in a way that I wouldn't handle mine. I mean, it's it's I. It's look what I did. Look what look what I've done. You know, if only they'd have given me this. I mean, it's me and mine. I. It's never we and us. And I mean, he's done some of that with his loyal following. You know, the base. The he'll say, you know, we're going to do this and we're going to do that. But um, I, I think P- Trump's blind spot is his ego. But he's in Washington, guys. He's in the field of politics. I mean, do we really believe he's the only narcissistic, egotistical politician right in, in Washington? There. Yeah, I mean, he's exactly where he should be if he's a, a, a narcissist and a um. But but not, in, in all seriousness, and I mean this, I think Donald Trump is the best president of my lifetime. I think Reagan carried himself more presidentially. I think Reagan respected the office. I think Reagan's times allowed him to do things in moderate sorts of ways, working with Tip O'Neill and some of the other um, leadership. But but I think Trump did exactly what Trump thought he had to do, and that is, you know, tear it down. Um, you know, that's kind of the great debate in American politics today, Rev. There's some who believe we don't have to burn it down to build it back. I mean, there's some in our party who believe, well, you know, give me the scalpel. 
you know, give me a, a little bit of this and a little bit of that, and a little bit of this next time and a little bit more of that, uh, you know, and then there's an element within our party who believes, no, no, I mean, we're done with that. I mean, we're going to burn it down and then we'll rebuild it. I'm kind of in that mindset. I mean, I just don't think we can tweak and turn and twist. I think you've got to just, you know, let, let Washington sink and see what rises from the ashes. Let's go to the phone. Joe in Hartsville. Morning, Joe. Yes, good morning, guys. You know, Dr. Kaufman knows better than this. I mean, he's sitting there. If, if he doesn't know any better, he's like the guy that shoots both his parents and then goes before the judge and pleads for mercy because he's an orphan. You know, <laughs> the thing he didn't say about uh, going to Saudi Arabia was the fact that Joe Biden, before he went, said, I'm going to a conference of a lot of leaders, and I probably won't even meet directly with him. So it shows him getting off the thing and walking straight up and fist-bumping him and talking straight to him. But, you know, in these cycles that we work in now, reminds me of a saying that I read here a while back. Hard times create strong men. Strong men create good times. Good times create weak men, and weak men create hard times. And if you look back over since Reagan, Carter, Reagan, Bush, Clinton, Bush, Obama, Trump, now Biden, you'll see that cycle. As things get good, people get weak. And they think it's always going to be good, so they let down their guard, and we end up with what we end up with. They, the, the, the people that hate Trump will hate DeSantis. They'll hate Holly. They'll hate Cruz. It doesn't matter who. The Democrats have contested every Republican win that I know of in the Congress on the day they, they certified the Electoral College vote. I mean, they've held up the vote two to six hours wanting to have a conference because they objected to the electors that were being put forward. So it, it, this is all political. But I, I know Dr. Kaufman knows better than that, so y'all have a good one. Thank you, Joe. Appreciate that. Hey, in studio, we have a special guest. Don't want to keep him too long. He's a busy man. Uh, Wayne Mulling <laughs> is our general manager, and there, there's another title on your uh, vice executive yeah, president. vice president. Um, he manages our South Carolina uh, footprint and does a marvelous job of that. Um, he kind of keeps me connected with the owner, so I got to be in good graces with with Wayne, and I'm in good graces with uh, with ownership. But good morning, sir. How are you? Good morning, guys. Good morning. Good show as always. And Thank Wayne you. has been very, very supportive of what we do here in these four hours. But he's got a cluster of radio stations to run, and we're always in the middle of some sort of promotion or or event. And and this time is no different. Well, this week we have something kind of exciting going on in all three of our markets: Florence, Sumter and Orangeburg. Tonight, we have, we've brought back the guys from Mark Patrick Seminars, and they're the uh, hypnosis guys that help with the uh, weight loss and with smoke cessation. Tonight, we'll be in Florence. Tomorrow night, we'll be in Orangeburg, and on Thursday night, we'll be in Sumter. 
And uh, tonight it's at 5 o'clock. It will be at the Hampton Inn and Suites on, on the north, north uh, I-95 exit and uh, uh, at the Hampton Inn and Suites. And at 5 o'clock, I think, is the weight loss, and at uh, 8 o'clock is the smoking cessation. A lot of people swear by it. They all, a lot of people say that it works. We have an employee of ours, in fact, in Sumter, that had uh, smoked for years and years and went last time and has uh, – not smoke scent. So uh, a lot of people swear by and say it really works good. And so uh, we just wanted to let everybody know there's all kinds of details on the uh, live953.com website and uh, where you can go. You can get your tickets at the door or you can purchase them ahead of time. And uh, it should be uh, something pretty fun. Okay. I got to ask Wayne this now. I'm going to let you, there, there's, a, there's an area outside of our studio where people go and, <laughs> and, and we'll have smoke breaks. I mean, I've been around smoke breaks all my yeah. life, but in the manufacturing business, you don't smoke here, but you can smoke over there. Um, this does, I mean, it, people are always skeptical when you hear the word hypnosis. I mean, right. people are like, ah, oh, that's snake oil. I mean, here they go with, with some craziness, but he's coming back. Yeah. And for him to come back means that, you know, that there's some reason to believe it worked. Sure. It may not work for everyone, yeah. but, but it will work for some. Um, or any, is, is anybody here that, that is um, smoking interested in? in I don't in, know. I don't know. Maybe so. We'll, we'll see. We'll find out. <laughs> the, the, I'm always trying to encourage people to stop smoking. Sure, I mean, you know, right. I'm, I'm always giving Wayne this hard time. These people outside, and they're taking a smoke break. And good Lord, I got vices of mine. When they're just not just yeah. not smoking, but um, the the guy does a phenomenal job of making sure we're integrated, involved on top right. of things when it comes to the community. And and Wayne, I want to give you one two minutes here before you uh, leave to to make sure people understand that. I mean, you've been in in media and advertising and radio for a long time. Long time. Uh, it has evolved. It is a very distant yeah. connection now. It's run by computers in a land far far away um we have one two three studios at times four studios with real human beings doing real live work that's always been important to community broadcasters it really has this company is different than any other company uh in radio that i've ever worked for in the fact that uh you know we believe very firmly in having a local footprint and having people in studios locally that not just here but in all three of our markets here sumter and in orangeburg and that's different than today. I mean, Rev's an old hand at radio, and you kind of romance old about hand. the days that, well, I mean, you do. You talk a lot about, man, I remember the days of this, and that, but it's all computerized now. We refuse to give in to that. I mean, yeah. we want to be intimately connected to the communities of which we, we broadcast in and investing in these communities. Yeah. And, and you've been here how long? I've been here five years in June. And in, in, in those five years, you have made a very intentional effort to connect and support whatever right. sorts of community endeavors yeah. are going on out there. And and here's my last. If somebody out there needs promotion or advertising or marketing, how can they reach out to community broadcasters? Well, all they have to do is call the uh, main number here. They call right here in Florence, 843-678-9393. And uh, they can talk to me or they can talk to one of our account execs, and we'll be glad to handle it for them. Right. Wayne set off a blistering email. To me and, and a bunch of others last week. And we, we, call call, Wayne we call those Wayne specials. We call them Wayne specials. But Sirius XM had, had insulted terrestrial radio. They did. And Wayne fired back an article that some, I guess somebody in your similar circumstance said, let me tell you what radio does. Um, radio reaches about 93% of every American. Um, yeah, on a weekly basis. Uh, on a weekly basis. And only, what, 14% are, are touching base with uh, satellite radio or some right. other 
uh, medium of communication, there's still a great future in radio. And I believe as someone who was a part of a team, it's got to be intimate. It's got to be local. It's got to be boots on the ground, um, involving yourself in the community. You can't run these businesses a million miles away and we don't try. And you have to take a personal interest. You know, uh, my motto has always been to, uh, uh, under promise and over deliver. And we try to do that with every single client, every single customer and take it personal and help them personally, because this isn't about radio. This is about helping our customers to succeed and grow their business. And that's what we try to do every day. And if we don't do it, we don't stay in business. That's exactly right. And as we make that appeal to our listeners, this show is being heard in Sumter, Orangeburg, and in the PD area. Uh, We have local sales staffs. Not only you talk about local air personalities on a a variety of radio stations and formats, we have local sales staffs and people to, 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 to deal with and, and handle the, uh, the the client relationships in all of our markets. That's right. So if you're listening in Orangeburg, I would just call uh, 803-536-1710 is the local office in Orangeburg. In Sumter, it's 803-775-2321. Mm-hmm. And in Florence and the PD, it's 843-678-9393. Good deal. And tonight, once again, what time and where? 5 o'clock at the Hampton Inn and Suites. And is the weight loss at 5 o'clock, and at 8 o'clock is the smoking cessation seminar. Good deal. Thank you, sir. Good Thank to see you. you. Thank we'll, you, guys. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few moments. 843-661937 is our number. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Here's Mike in Darlington. Good morning, Mike. Hey, uh, great, great, great show as always. But um, I I think it's very good that uh, you, you recognize that the local impact you have in the educational benefit you have for the whole broadcast area. I think it's a very good thing. But uh, what I called about was Dr. Kaufman. Uh, I, it's obvious he's a intelligent man and uh, very knowledgeable on some issues, but every time he wants to obfuscate or very cleverly minimize the facts, like he just had to slip that in about the Keystone Pipeline. Well, that was only 130 million uh, barrels of oil. Well, uh, the capacity, peak capacity, my understanding was closer to 800 million barrels of oil. And uh, that's a lot. That is a whole lot. If you figure 10 gallons of gasoline out of every barrel of oil, uh, that's going to affect the gas price a lot more than drawing out uh, from our uh, National Defense Reserve. That's just my view on that. But why is this thing they cannot accept that uh, Trump might have gotten legitimately screwed and there's no denying he has an ego if he didn't have an ego he wouldn't be where he is today and um, he has paid more of a price to be president than I think anyone in living memory has done and I, I don't see how you can't look at that and say hey maybe he really does care and because he's not making himself rich he's not really he had a, a great life before he was ever ever thought about being president. So um, that's just my view that Trump is maybe not as uh, selfish as some people make him out to be. But you have to have an ego if you're going to do anything in this world. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate that. You know, we live in an either-or society. You're either this or you're that. And when I see Trump, I see uh, really some of the great – I don't know. I mean, think of um Tom Brady. I mean, Brady has a lot of detractors. 
I mean, but but we live in a society for whatever reason. Steve Spurrier comes to mind. Um, either you like him or you don't. And I think we've got to take people in, in their full body of work. I mean, I think, yeah, there are a lot of things about Trump I don't like. I mean, I come from a very small town where humility was celebrated. Uh, the, the wealthiest man in town never acted like the wealthiest man in town. Um, that, that was a quality or characteristic that, that was, I mean, it resonated in my community. But Trump on stage says, I'm rich. Well, sure. I'm really I mean, rich. And then there's so, so, but, but I can accept Trump. I mean, I understand that Queens it in Pamplico and I understand, uh, I mean, freehold. I mean, Mike's from freehold. Uh, people do things differently in New Jersey. There's a different, I mean, there is, there's a different way we conduct ourselves. I mean, our, our situations in life dictate a lot of how uh, we personalize things. I mean, you know, the Southerners, we're famous for what? We're more, more friendly. I mean, we're just more friendly than, I don't know if we are or not. I don't have any idea if we are or not. I do know that we society, are. well, I mean, society, I think we are. Society <laughs> um, almost forces us to look at a person as either good or bad. And I think there are, I think there's good in all people. I think there's bad in all people. I mean, I think the human capacity is is up for debate. You know, I just read this morning. Do you believe people in general are um, innately good or bad? Both. I mean, I think people are good and I think people are bad. So when I look at Trump, I don't look at some robotic uh, figure that somebody created in a laboratory. I look at a real live human being who's got blind spots. You know, he's got some 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 issues. He's got some personality characteristics and traits that I think hone him. I think calls him great consternation. I mean, I think Trump not being able to control his. Um, well, I mean, I, I think there's a there, there's a. What, I don't want to say this because it's un, unfair to him. There's a. Uh, well, I will say it. At times, he appears to be a bit juvenile and immature. Um, not letting certain things roll off. I mean, imagine saying, "I like my heroes who weren't." I'm captured. I mean, what possesses someone to say that? I mean, I'm fairly unfiltered, but but there's no way I would have ever said that. I mean, there's just no way. There's no conceivable way that I would have said, no matter what my opinions of John McCain are, no matter what he voted for or against, there's no way I would have ever said, I like my heroes who weren't ever captured. So, so that's a blind spot. That comes with Trump. But that's just who he is. You're not going to get Trump without that. But look at what else you got. And, and I'm on the record. I mean, I think I don't know if I've ever said this. Uh, I think Donald Trump's the best president in my lifetime. I don't think second's real close. I think Reagan embodied and represented himself as a president in a way that I have. Um, in, in retrospect, I mean, I wasn't a political junkie back then. I've told you my story. The register vote lost 40. But, but I watched the effect that Reagan had on my father, you know, an optimistic business uh, in other words, an optimistic climate of which to conduct business. I mean, that, you know, my dad, I can remember my dad saying, yeah, you know, we'll, th- this guy will make it better for us. I mean, he'll, he'll unleash the private sector. He'll, he'll, he'll energize the economy. He'll do these, these sorts of things. Um, but, but Reagan was not perfect. Clinton was certainly not perfect. The Bushes were not perfect. Um, Trump's just a lot of different things. And I think when you try to say Trump is good or Trump is bad, I think Trump is good. And I think Trump is bad. I think I'm good. And I think I'm bad. I think Dave Baker is good. And I think Dave Baker is bad. Um, it's just that our lives, well, I mean, mine at some point in time was, but most of our lives are not lived on television. They're not lived on the front page 
of whatever website or morning newspaper. And, and when you deal with that in the extravagant fashion Trump lives his life, you're going to be criticized. You're going to be ridiculed at times. And at times you ask for it. Um, he did. I mean, he kind of picked a fight with the media. Sure. I mean, he called them fake news and they took him on. But I'll tell you what, Trump won that going away. I mean, that's secretariat in a horse race. I mean, that's not even close. Trump has absolutely obliterated <laughs> They're still swinging at any it. faith or trust people ever had in the media. I mean, when you think about the legacy of Trump, I mean, there are a lot of things to, that he'll will we'll remember Trump. They'll write about Trump. They'll they'll study Trump. They'll they'll histor- you know they'll, they'll historically analyze the the goods and bads. I mean, it mainly be bads because he's not popular with academics because he's not an academic. He's not popular with the media because he's, well, I mean, he's probably better at that than they are. I mean, if you beat somebody in their own realm, they're going to despise you. So Trump invites the media into a street fight and he wins with the media. How do you know Trump won? Look at the approval ratings or the trustworthiness number of the media in America today. I mean, it never declined like it has during Trump. Even the people that don't like Trump. I've got friends that don't like Trump at all. You know what they say, though? The media should be ashamed of themselves and how committed they were to destroy his presidency. I mean, these are people that don't like Trump, and but they're smart enough. They're not going to embarrass themselves by saying, well, the media treated him like they do everybody else. The media tried to cover him as they have all other presidents. No, the media didn't, and any moron knows they didn't. They wanted to disparage everything about him because they made their mind up before giving him any chance at all that he was bad. And, and I just think society in general tries to put us in, there's only two categories, you're good or you're bad. Guess what? Most of us have a foot in each camp. Let's go to the phone. Here is David in the PD. Hello, David. Want to see us? Turns on worries. Uh, Kent, you guys were talking about billionaire heiresses earlier in the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just want to say my name's David. I'm a Capricorn, and I'm brave enough to call a talk radio show. So if there's any billionaire heiresses out there, I just made my my calling there. Breeze made a great call this morning, my man. Um, he was talking about. Uh, Latino, Latina, and even if I say Latino, Latina, within that language, they know the difference between a man and a woman. And I'll ask, I'm sure, Ken, you've watched Univision for the weather before? Yeah, they have some pretty photogenic um, weather girls. I'm letting you know that you know the difference between a man and a woman, and I do too, and if you ever want to test yourself, watch Univision but in their language, you have Chica Bonita means one thing. Chico Bonito means another thing. So they know they're a man and a woman. I give them credit. I mean, I know them as Marta, Tessi, uh, Guillermo. I know as people. And I'll give, I'll give them credit. Um, they have traditional values. They're not caught up in the Democrat trap yet. They're not caught up in that trap yet. The, the Democrats are trying to get them caught up in a trap. Uh so I will give them credit, and maybe we need to change this name to America's First. America's First, and make them feel like they're part of a team. Y'all have a good day. Thank you, David. Appreciate that. 843-661-0937 is our number. Another caller there. Ashley in Poston's Corner. Morning, Ashley. Good morning, fellas. Great uh, great show as usual. Um, I'll tell you, I, I'll, I'll break it down real simple. And, and Dr. Kaufman, even though – I think he's a little bit more 
a moderate than progressive Democrat than most of them. They're scared to death because we're finally starting to fight back. The Democratic Party, the whole reason they want to demagogue us and put us in categories as racist, uh, homophobic, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They're scared to death because we finally woke up and we said, listen, if you're going to punch me, I'm going to punch you three times back. They're, they're fine when Schumer gets up there and, and demagogues everything, or Pelosi wants to tear down the world. But if a Republican doesn't, and it's not just Trump, and now Trump embodies that, but they're scared to death that we're finally ready to fight. And, and that's all I got to say. Thank you, Ashley. Appreciate that. I've often said that the one thing, I mean, somewhat who is, I mean, I've run for office, so that would make me a little bit politically astute. Maybe I overstate my awareness at times. But I've always felt the great mistakes of Republican nominees of days gone by. And I'm talking about both Bushes. I'm talking about Romney, McCain. I'll even go back to Dole. Um, They believed they had a chance at Chuck Todd's heart. They had a chance to gain favor with George Stephanopoulos. There was an outside shot that CNN wouldn't do a hit job if they'd only play along, go along, and get along. And Trump said, screw that. There's no way in hell Chuck Todd will ever treat me fair. I'm a Republican nominee running against Hillary Clinton. What do I think Chuck Todd's going to do? What do I think the New York Times is going to write about? What do I believe the Washington Post is going to report on? So I'll just confront those people where they are, under their terms. And I'll make a mockery of their business. But Mitt Romney believed, because he was a very capable politician, and that means suave and debonair and smoothing and and convincing, that, that he could sit down with Chuck Todd long enough to convince Chuck Todd that it might be time to give a Republican a chance to become president. Trump never attempted that. He knew better than that. Talk about naive and gullible. I mean, some of the smartest people in the Republican Party still hold out hope. I mean, I hear these establishment politicos talk about Trump's danger, his threat to democracy. No, the threat to democracy is you guys for not providing an equal and opposite resistance to a leftist agenda. The media was not going to keep the left in check. Academia is not going to keep the left in check. The government bureaucracies are not going to keep the leftist agenda in check. Uh, but, But Mitt Romney believed that he was going to get a fair shake. Remember when the big girl doing the debate, what's her name? Candy, um, Candy Crowley. Crowley. Yeah, remember when she kind of interjected herself in the mm-hmm. debate? Romney should have said, ma'am, shut, down and ha- shut up and have another donut. <laughs> I mean, seriously. I mean, Trump would have. Yeah, of course he would have. <laughs> he would have said, you know, shut down and have a, sit down, shut up and have another, another donut. We would have been taken aback, but America would have said, she had no business doing that. I mean, she had no business interjecting him. She's running interference for Biden. Well, I mean, excuse me, for Obama. Now, we found out after the fact she was wrong. Biden was, but, but, but Romney wanted to be respectful. He wanted to be revered. He wanted to be a statesman. And, and every time he turned around, the statement gets stabbed in the back. The, the, the dignified persona gets you nowhere in Washington. So Trump shows up and basically plays the game under his terms, not their terms. That's why those people despise him, because they've always been able to set the ground rules, and we play under the ground rules that they set. Trump comes and says, I don't know what the ground rules were, but here's how I roll. Now, now once again, 
I think he overstepped his bounds at times, and I think you would agree at times. I mean, you wish he hadn't said, I like my heroes who weren't captured? Of course. Of course. I mean, that's overstepping. That's that's when you scratch your head. Uh, she was bleeding out of her eyes or wherever. I mean, that, I'm, I'm going like, come on, man. Damn. I mean, that, that makes it hard on us. I mean, you know what I mean? We're out here trying to defend you. We're out here trying to justify, sanctify, get you elected. And you say, I like my heroes who weren't captured. And we're like, Donald, come on. She was bleeding out of her eyes or wherever. That's another, Donald, come on, man. I mean, we're trying to help you because we believe you're going to eventually help us. But you got to stop that. And that's where I go to the juvenile immaturity that at times appeared to be the, the blind spot that I don't think he's still properly addressed. I think Wesley Donahue said something so interesting yesterday when we talked about the unorthodox, you know, the way Trump went about his business. We're talking about cancel culture, the book he wrote. Um, it's kind of an interesting read. And, and, and Wes said, let me ask you a question. Do you believe everything you've ever said in your life is true and accurate? And I said, no, of course I don't. He said, well, Trump does. <laughs> he, he really believes that everything he's ever said, maybe he's self-convinced, I don't know, maybe he self-medicates in a weird kind of way. Um, and I guess the reason we're talking about Trump, I actually texted Kahaley a minute ago, uh, but consultants are like rock stars. They sleep all night and stay up. Excuse me, they sleep all day and stay up all night. Uh, but I'm going to try to get Robert to come on the air in the next day or two and explain, um, first of all, why you all of a sudden released a poll on Biden and Trump and we got Trump at 40, I want to make sure I get this right, got Trump at 47.9. Now, Trafalgar released a poll last night just before 11 o'clock. Uh, Haley tweeted it, uh, Trump 47.9, Biden 42.6, undecided is 9.6. That undecided is good for Trump. 9.6. 7% of the 9.6 are going to vote for Trump. They just don't want to verbalize it. I mean, the hidden Trump voter is still out there, probably more than they've ever been because they gave this other guy a chance and he's obviously, obviously not up for the job. The biggest takeaway from Kaufman's discussion and I, he believes that Biden is a failure because they have failed to present an agenda or a cohesive um, argument. They, um, they're pulling in a lot of different directions. I think the problem with Joe Biden is the American people perceive him to be incompetent. And I think the incompetence derives from an obvious cognitive decline. Joe Biden has never been an overachiever. Joe Biden has always been kind of a dunce, a blowhard, but he had seniority, been there forever, uh, knew how the game was played, probably played the game fairly well, well, well enough to make himself, his son, and his brother wealthy. But no, nothing about Biden's life suggested that he was going to be a, an overachiever in any way, shape, or form. When you combine uh, the perennial underachiever with cognitive decline, and, and, you know, just a faculty that just isn't there as it previously was, incompetence is going to reign supreme. And I think that's Biden's biggest problem. The American public believe that he's in over his head. Take a break. Back in a minute. <laughs> I like. I mean, I really do. I think, um, I think I, the new voice work must have arrived. I mean, I mean uh, fr Freehold is really taking charge. So I got to ask you a question before we get to our call. Um when when I Rev says I complained, when I when I addressed the the intro music at the beginning of the show yesterday, where how did you process that? Where did you I mean, did you have a song in mind, a beat in mind, a jingle in mind? I mean, is there something out there that you said this would be a good place to start? 
Um, I just wanted to get something that's going to grab people, something, okay. something upbeat that's going to grab people. Because it's hard to grab people at 6.05 in the morning, yeah. Yeah. but uh, it grabbed me. I mean, I was like, well, okay, that's, that's a little unique and up. different, and I like. So a thumbs up to Freehold. But I mean, Springsteen's from Freehold, so what am I going to say bad about a guy that I've nicknamed Freehold? And listeners here in the very late minutes of the show, you have to hear us in the very early minutes at 6.06 in the morning to know what we're talking about with the show open music. So, hey, set your alarm a little earlier and listen to my If you do that, God bless you. So, like I say, if you can put up with us four hours a day, (laughs) God bless you. Here's uh, Ann in Florence. Hello, Ann. You're on the air. Good morning. I wanted to call um, and let you guys know that the Mark Patrick seminar that's going to be held for smoking cessation, my mom came over um, from Dillon in um, in the early 90s, the day she turned 50, he had a seminar. She came to the quit smoking one, and when she died at 74, she had never smoked again. Wow. And she gives that seminar credit. Yes, she did, because mm. she tried on her own for um, a number of years and couldn't just put them down. And she came to the seminar, got hypnotized, and she never smoked again. She did mention at times she wanted to pick one up, but she never did. Interesting. Thank you, Ann. Appreciate you sharing that information. So Rev's got his fingers crossed when Ann starts going that road, because we don't field her calls. I mean, we didn't ask Ann, hey, what do you want to talk no, about? Because um, she should have said, or she could have said, you know, it, this hypnosis is a bunch of bull. I mean, it, there's right. nothing to it. It's the biggest scam going in the world today. Unsolicited endorsement. Yeah. And so there you go for what it's worth. And I would imagine it works in some cases. In other cases, it probably um, does not work. details are on live953.com. If you're interested in finding out more about Mark Patrick seminars, it'll be across uh, our listening area over the next three days. You know, it's kind of an interesting, I never turn to my kids for philosophy but my oldest son, I mean, a lot of you know the story with addiction and opiates. And I mean, he was introduced to opiates at about 13 years old with surgeries he had, um, came became a full-blown addict, is now recovered, going on four years of sobriety. Um, but but it's kind of interesting because we, we've had other people reach out to us since we made our, um, our life story public. And uh, my son's always telling people, and I'm so proud of him for saying this, look, if you don't want help, there's nowhere you can go. If you want help, you can go about anywhere. I mean, our professional treatment and world-class treatment is one thing. And, you know, having a little money in the process of which you, you know where I'm headed. I mean, some are better than others, no doubt about it. But if you want help, there are people in places that can help you. If you don't, you don't have enough money. I don't have enough money. You don't have enough time. I don't have enough time. Uh, to help and uh smoking's kind of a pet peeve of mine i've never smoked i chewed a little tobacco when i played softball and baseball and whatnot but as far as tobacco use i've been fortunate there probably drank too much beer six or eight years of my life not there any longer um thank the good lord in heaven but uh yeah if you want help and smoking is something that you've just struggled with all of your life um give this a shot you know does it work i don't know Ann said it did for her mother um, and it may indeed for you. So that's not an endorsement, but that is encouragement to, you know, give things a shot. Uh, don't decide before that it will work or will not work. Take a break back in just a minute. 